Hello, YouTube watchers and podcast listeners. My name is Johnny Dupe, and welcome to Movie Change Up, the show where we reboot and pitch new versions of movies we love and movies we love to hate. Today, I will not only be your host, I will also be casting judgment on the souls of our two combatants. Before we introduce them, please help us out by liking and subscribing on YouTube, as well as leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Or every podcast app, honestly. Add all of them. Go five-star everything. Give us new reviews. That'd be great. Um, tonight we have a battle of two men looking for their first victory. Uh, neither of them have won yet. They're both the, the newest to the show. Um, first, I'll start with uh, the more experienced fighter whose record is 0-3. Please introduce uh, Neither of them have won yet. They're both the, the newest to the show. Feedback coming. There we go. Uh, well, my name's Bobby, and yeah, I'm 0-3. I... Uh, I definitely need a win. I've been happy with my pitches, and I've just barely missed on all three of them, uh, losing by one point. Um, so I hope that does not continue, and uh, I'm hoping to turn it around against uh, against Tristan here. Absolutely. Pressure's on. And uh, Tristan, uh, introduce yourself. Tell me a little about, about yourself, because I was not here last week uh, for your debut. Uh, hi, I'm Tristan. I'm a big movie fan. I'm a movie reviewer, so I write a lot of movie reviews on my website, and I'm 0-1 right now, so I'm hoping to even it up and get going on the positive. So, you know, I, I lost last week by one point in the last round, so I'm hoping to set it set it straight 1-1. One one. That's a good, clean beginning, and I'm ready to win. All right. Well, perfect. Well, last week I, li- I listened to the show. I watched some of it, but I was busy. If anyone didn't notice, I missed my first episode of the uh, show last week because I was uh, – on vacation and um i was uh getting engaged to my now beautiful fiance uh angelica so she is also our um guest uh consulting judge so angelica how is it uh how's uh the engaged life and how is the podcast life what's more nerve-wracking the engagement was beautiful it's been a great week uh just about a full week to in a few hours um i've been a long-time listener of the podcast big fan so I'm very excited to be a part of it. Perfect. Oh, my my uh, Bobby and I's younger brother Michael says, "Let's get this YouTube money." <laughs> so he looks like kind of monetizing. We're all we're all yeah. watching. Um, so my other my other thing um, for the week, the other thing we missed out like the day after our uh, episode aired last week, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away. I believe he was 43 years old. Um, very sad. He was in a ton of great roles, including. You know, Black Panther's obviously what he was most famous for, but he played uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall and uh, Jackie Robinson, and I just love him and get on up um, as yeah. James Brown. So just uh, rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman. Amazing story, super inspirational guy and an amazing actor. So I just wanted to give that kind of a shout out because that happened uh, in between our in between our shows on literally the day of my engagement. So that was a little distracting. Great news. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but uh, you know, rest in peace. He he leaves a lot of great stuff behind and uh, has inspired a lot of people. So, so Chadwick Boseman, shout out to you. Um, so I'm going to start uh, introducing our movies. We're doing nine movies today, as always, and we're doing nine rules as well. And I will uh, introduce those right now. Um, so first of all, uh, we have in honor of. Uh, the new Bill and Ted movie that just came out. We have Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure um, from 1989. Um, we have uh, Cats uh, from 2019. We have The Exorcist from 1973. 
Uh, we have The Fast and the Furious from 2001, Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from 1989, the uh, Adam Sandler classic Jack and Jill from 2011, Superman the Movie from 1978, and To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962. Um Obviously, Bobby and Tristan must use one rule per movie for each of their pitches. They can't use the same rule twice. And our nine rules for the evening are one must be made into a Pixar movie. One must include Charlie Sheen. One I am very interested in seeing, which is one must be as problematic as possible. Uh, One must include Harley Quinn. One must be a Guillermo del Toro movie. One must use the cast of a sitcom One must only use Middle Earth actors, so anyone in the Lord of the Rings or Hobbit trilogies. Um, One must be set in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, and one must have uh, one actor or actress playing every role. So those are our rules, and those are our our movies. So, Bobby, you won the coin toss. If you would like to uh, start uh, or pick your movie, whatever you want to do, let us know what's, uh, what's about to happen. All right, so I, I was debating on a few of these, but I think I'm going to start uh, with Superman the movie from 1978, and I'll go first. All right, so um, Superman the movie is a classic, one of the first you know, breakthrough, maybe arguably the first breakthrough uh, superhero movie um, in Hollywood, because obviously before that you had like the 60s Batman show, but that was more campy. This was, you know... You can see a man fly. So Superman, the movie from 1978, it has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. IMDb describes it as an alien orphan is sent from his dying planet to Earth, where he grows up to become his adoptive home's uh, first and greatest superhero, starring uh, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, and Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Um, It is also uh, directed by the great Richard Donner. So Bobby... You are starting with our uh, Superman pitch. So uh, what do you got for me? All right. So I'll start with my director. Um, So I chose Andy Muschietti, who did It and It Chapter 2. And I did not do it for the horror reasons, but I really love the tone he gave, kind of that coming to age story and the tone that the kids had in that movie. And I feel like that kind of hopeful innocence is kind of the tone I want to go for for my Superman remake. Um. So my rule is that I'm using only Middle Earth actors for this one. Um, so my Superman, Clark Jorel, is going to be played by Aiden Turner. He's from the Hobbit movies. Uh, he was in Poldark and Being Human. Um, he has a great look. He looks like Superman, and he's also a relative unknown. He's not going to take you out of the movie. You kind of want him to embody Superman. Uh, my... Jonathan Kent, my Pa Kent, is going to be a slightly aged up Sean Astin. I think he can bring that sincere kind of role to it and just be that kind of farm guy and the the kind of father you really need, that father figure. Uh, my Martha Kent is going to be, a, again, a slightly aged up Kate Blanchett. I think she can play just about anything. Um, she can just be a great uh, role model for Superman once Jonathan Kent dies. Uh, my Lois Lane is going to be Evangeline Lilly, uh, who was also in the Ant-Man movies. Um, my Lex Luthor is going to be Vigo Mortensen. I'd like to see him take a villain turn and I think he can play that very well, uh, to, to cast. Um, I also to cast Jimmy Olsen, uh, is going to be Elijah Wood. Cause he still looks like he's about 20. Um, and I think he 
can play that perfectly as kind of a side character. My Perry White is going to be Ian McKellen. Um, and then my I have another actor that I'm going to bring in at the end of my movie, and I'll tell you that as my pitch goes. So as I said, so I wanted that tone that Andy Muschietti brought to the child portion without the horror of it. Um, I thought it was shot beautifully. I thought it was, um, it portrayed that kind of innocence and kind of what you would want, what a lot of people thought was missing from that Man of Steel, uh, which was kind of a reboot of Superman the movie already. Um, it was like a reboot with Superman 2 involved with Zod. But this is going to be more of the Superman origin story that people wanted to see when Man of Steel came out. Uh, it's not going to be a complete remake, but it has the tone. So um, in this movie, it's the, it's Superman's origin. It starts out with Clark in Smallville. Um, pa Kent ends up, he dies from a heart attack. You still leave that in there. Uh, you still have, because I just love the way, that's one thing I didn't like in Man of Steel, because I didn't like that he had the choice to save his dad. Um, it's told in a more linear fashion with a few small flashbacks to when he was a kid um, to tell that origin story. But where this differs is my Lex Luthor is not going to be going for real estate and stuff that he was in those old movies. I'm going to pull from a comic storyline, and he's actually going to be running for president in this movie. Um, so he is looking to run for president, and he's he looks at, looks at Superman – uh, after Superman comes onto the scene and he's saving people in uh, Metropolis um, and he thinks he might be able to use him to help win if he becomes a friend with him and meets and, you know, becomes friendly with Superman, has him push for him to become president. Once he, he meets with Superman and Superman's like, no, I don't want to be seen as a political figure. I just want to do good and justice for, for the city and for the world. Um, and therefore Lex then turns on him and ends up calling him an alien from, you know, another planet after doing research, he finds the, finds crash scenes uh, and all that. So he, he basically pitches Superman as he is an illegal alien. So you get a little bit of a political edge kind of thrown in there. You have a businessman running for president. So it's a Trump reference without necessarily being on the nose because the character is Lex Luthor. He's not exactly Donald Trump. Um, he says he's the only one who can get rid of this menace to society. Um, and then basically you have uh, Lex uh, using the media to kind of build animosity towards Superman. Uh, my end fight is going to be Lex ends up building the suit that he has in the comics that he uses to fight Superman. So he uses kryptonite and he builds a suit so he can actually have a combat battle because that was one of the things missing in Superman Returns was he didn't really fight anyone with Lex Luthor back in it. So you're still going to have a fight at the end. You have Lois Lane ends up recording Lex as he is like bringing her in the story. There's a whole love story with, with Lois and Superman throughout the whole movie. Lois goes to the fight uh, against Superman's will, and she records Lex to kind of prove to the media and everyone that Lex was, um, was framing Superman as being this bad guy. Uh, and once Superman defeats... Lex in that final battle, uh, he gets uh, Lex gets put in this big court trial, and that's where he's tied up at the end of the movie. He's arrested and he's on trial. Gives him an out to come back in later movies if you want, without necessarily like breaking out of prison. Um, and then at the very end of the movie, you have a shot of space and you see a ship coming towards Earth, and this is going to be Brainiac. So Brainiac, played by Andy Serkis, is going to be coming down to set up the sequel. That's one that, that I really want to see, but I didn't necessarily want him in the origin story because I love that Lex Luthor is kind of that main 
initial guy. So you get the, I, I think the tone of the movie is great. I think you get a little di different type of Lex Luthor with Viggo Mortensen, and also that he can actually fight Superman physically. Um, and then you also get a buildup towards a second one with Brainiac with Andy Serkis, who can play a great villain. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right, Tristan, what do you got for me? So for my Superman, the movie, I used the entire cast of Community, the sitcom. I brought in okay. regular directors from Community, Joe and Anthony Russo, and the writer of Community, Dan Harmon. Community loved to do big homages to famous and nerdy movies and, and huge scale tributes that kind of use the same storyline, the same elements of the movies. So I brought that into this and I wanted, and since the community fans are always trying to demand their movie, you know, six scenes in the movies, but they're all tweeting, what they're all saying on Facebook. So this is going to be, they're finally getting the community movie, but it's not just a community movie. It's a Superman parody movie with the entire cast community in it. So for my Superman, I have Joel McHale. My Lois Lane is Allison Brie. My Lex Luthor is Jim Rash. And I have two uh, Lex Luthor's sort of sidekicks, similar to how the original had Otis, but I have two that are Otis and Evan, played by Danny Putty and Donald Glover. My Joe Rowell is played by Chevy Chase. My Perry White is Keith David. And my Pa Kent is Jonathan Banks. So since we have the whole cast community in this movie, it's not taking itself super seriously. It's sort of a parody of superhero movies while still tributing what makes them great. I think that's what community did so well is it never made fun of the genres. It was homaging. It used them to great effect, but it always respected them and always candidated them from the perspective of a fan, someone who enjoyed them generally and wanted to pay tribute to them. So my Joe McHale is Clark Kent, and he's always been kind of strange and having inexplicable things happening around him. You know, he can jump over a whole entire building. He can run across the whole state in a few seconds. And I think you can use that to sort of make fun of the fact that Clark being superhuman is, is, could be very obvious. And you could see Jonathan Banks is just coming up with these strange excuses like, oh, you weren't running very fast. You were just, you know running really slowly and you you blanked out and you could be like oh okay sure that makes sense and the whole town kind of just buys into these ridiculous stories of increasingly ridiculous things that clark is doing as a kid but eventually jonathan banks as pot kent sees that clark is getting to be an old man or you know like an older person becoming an adult and he decides i have to tell him the truth so he reveals to clark that you're not actually from smallville you're from krypton and you're a superhuman alien and Similar to the first one, like you said, I, I think it's good to have John, Jonathan Kent die out of Superman's control. So he has a heart attack and he dies. And Superman is forced to go to Metropolis where he meets Lois Lane, who, like I said, is played by Alison Brie, who is the sort of on-again, off-again crush romance with Joel McHale's character in Community. And he takes a tech from his crashed spaceship as a kid and leaves town. He establishes a fortress of solitude where he meets his, a projection of his true father, played by Chevy Chase. It's a good callback to community because they always make fun of how Chevy Chase is just like the older Joel McHale and they're making fun of Joel McHale for being just like Chevy Chase, but also making fun of Chevy Chase for being old. And that's sort of the running joke of community over Chevy Chase's character is that he's just so much older than everybody else in the group. And through a flashback, we'll see Chevy Chase's Jor-El playing a total ladies man on Krypton. He's getting tons of hot chicks on Krypton, partying all the time and Krypton's 
mysteriously decorated like a lot of 60s and 70s art design and culture. So it's sort of this throwback to like Chevy Chase's boomer days as being this big shot actor in, back in the day. And you see Jor-El as the same thing. He's getting all, he's very famous on Krypton. He's, he's well known. And then he discovers that it's going to explode. So he sends Clark back to Earth. And that's sort of a, a quick flashback that fills Clark in on his origin story. Meanwhile, he finds a job at the Daily Planet with Allison Bree's Lois Lane and photographer Jimmy Olsen, who's played by Ken Jeong. He's constantly wanting to be included in the investigations and included in the fun and included in the group, but they're never letting him in. They're all, he's kind of always on the outside, just like Chang was in, in Community. And Keith David, who comes in the Community in later seasons, plays Perry White. And the villain is Lex Luthor. In my version, he's a hypersensitive business owner who's always competing with businesses around him, trying to prove that he's like a real business and that he's just as good as the big businesses, sort of like Jim Rash's character in Community, who was, who was trying to prove that his school was just as good as a university, just as good as Ivy League schools, despite the fact that it definitely wasn't. And we would have Jim Rash's Lex Luthor constantly trying to prove himself and wanting to seduce uh, Superman to be his business his business partner, sort, sort of like the face of his business and his partner in crime. Because Jim Rash's character is always trying to get Joel McHale's character to hang out with him and be his friend and have a crush on him. And he's backed up by these increasingly ridiculous sidekicks, Donald Glover's Evan and Daddy Putty's Otis. Otis. In the show, they they're play off each other so well, I wanted to make sure they're together when you do a community-style movie. And Lex's plan is to use giant missiles to destroy competing businesses, starting with a daily planet, so that Lex, Lex Corp becomes the only, and therefore the best, business in all of town. Superman now faces a choice to either save Lois in the daily planet and let Luther get away, or to capture Luther and stop him from blowing up more buildings. But Superman works with Otis and Evan and inspires them to be better than themselves and to step up and beyond Luther. He's constantly abusing him and making fun of them and taking them advantage so Superman inspires Otis and Evan to be better than themselves and to sabotage Luther and his equipment. And Superman flies off and saves the city. And that's my pitch. All right. Um, okay. Uh, interesting pitches. Um, I think I go both understood both of your pitches about 30 seconds in and you both went on way too long with everything. But um, yeah, for, for, just future pitches, maybe maybe keep them a little to the point because I don't need every detail of the of the story because I kind of got where we were going and I'm I feel like I've already made up my mind, but I'm gonna let you two fight it out. And I, uh, Angelica, what are your initial thoughts on on the pitches? I realize that I have no idea what Superman is about. <laughs> so I kind of learned quickly. It's super embarrassing to admit. I think it's the yin and yang between John and myself, but. What I really liked about Bobby's was like the like subtlety of like he's running for president. And I like the tying in to um, I think we have a few live comments first really quickly. Perfect. What do we got? First time commenter, Joe Fricky. Next week we should have the rule must include Chadwick Boseman in your movie. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Okay. I was going to text you guys that this week, but you get but obviously I was on vacation and uh, everything was already included or done. So we didn't have it. Joe, we got anything else? Johnny, is that our Carol Baskins shirt? Huh. <laughs> it is oh, a tiger. Wow. 
I don't know what Carol Baskins is, but this is this is a Tiger It's Tiger King. King. Remember when I asked you to do oh, a mustache? God. Yeah, no, I don't watch. Shirt? I don't watch that trash. All right, Bobby. Our uh, Joe also says Viggo Mortensen is Lex's A plus casting. Not sure how to feel about a comedic Superman. Um, also did not expect Superman to give us two of the longest pitches <laughs> in Joe's history. I agree. <laughs> I and Alex Cover says community excellent show. Um, here's yeah, here's my thing. Superman, it's it's a pretty simple tale. Um, I didn't need as long pitches as as we got from him. Um, but my questions mainly are uh, with Bobby, are you aware that in Being Human, Aiden Turner plays a character named John Mitchell? Uh, I actually did know that, and I was going to bring it up in my arguments. <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> yes. That's my only question for you. And um, uh, for Tristan, I understand c- community does comedy while well in its show and kind of parodies things, but how? why, why would a two-hour or so version of like a community episode of a parody of Superman hold my interest when that show basically went off the rails and failed after like the first season and a half. Well, I think this time you would get the, you'd get the Russo brothers and Dan Harmon in full control. They wouldn't have to live up to like a network's idea of what the show should be. And they could really get back to that, that core of what made the first two seasons great. And that relationship between the characters, the, 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 the sort of way that they play off each other, all these actors, they're not going on these ridiculous quests that kind of like make their characters ridiculous. It's sort of like this, this way to ground the show back by doing this big ridiculous thing. And I think it doesn't have to be two hours. It can be, you know, an hour and a half. It can just be like a you know, longer, almost feature length episode of community that kind of just gets everyone together, gets everyone to be these without just being, like you said, it, it grows stale and it gets old. So I think, what would make this special is that it's not just them in the school again. It's not just them going on another wacky adventure class or whatever. It's, it's getting what makes community great, the characters and the commentary and the fun and the writing and the directing and all that into a big budget movie. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll let you two uh, duke it out uh, for a little bit. Yeah. So I just kind of basically what Johnny was getting at there is I, to me, yours feels like it would be a really good, 22 30 minute episode on of community um if it, if they did a superman episode um but i also don't see in a feature length movie i don't really like I, I don't know if that's going to drop a lot of interest i don't think that sounds very intriguing to me as well uh i don't know joel McHale as superman i mean i find joel McHale funny sometimes but i don't find him a fantastic actor um he's a pretty like he does comedic like comedies um and i just don't see him as superman Really, and I feel like it, to make the parody even better, you would have someone that looks and feels like Superman, but is also comedic and funny, or he's playing it seriously and everyone else is is comedic. Um, I don't really get that casting other than he's on Community, uh, and yeah, it's just I to, personally I just would rather see a telling of Superman's story done uh, true to the comics, done well because we haven't really seen that in a while. I feel like people would have, if you compare, if you parodied man of steel, that might get a little bit more interest played into the comedy of why people didn't like that movie. Um, but I, I don't think with Superman, that's a good fit personally. Well, I think that Joel McHale literally played a superhero on Stargirl, And it was awesome. It was, he played Starman, who was practically Superman. He had awesome powers. He flew, he fought people and it looked badass. 
And I think if he can pull that off, he can pull Superman off. And I think the attack on yours is that we've seen this movie like over and over again. We've seen the origin story attempt at Superman, what, three times now? And they do the small changes, but ultimately they're all the same movie. Man of Steel versus Superman, the movie versus Superman Returns even. They're all kind of just like trying to tell the same story with slight changes. But I see that for a fourth time and I'm just not going to be interested anymore. And I feel like you used Andy Muschietti, but for the coming of age element, but there's not really a coming of age element in your movie. Like there's some flashbacks to him as a kid, but for the majority of the movie, he's Superman and he's already Superman. He doesn't have an internal battle of what does it mean to Superman? He doesn't have this identity crisis that defines a character of him trying to figure out who he is as a, as a hero. So if you're using a coming of age character, coming of age director for the coming of age elements, there's no coming of age in that movie. So I'm not sure so, why you pick him. I mean, that's kind of inherent to the Superman story. And like, I mean, I went into a lot of details, but I kind of skipped over like, okay, obviously he's going to have the struggle of that, but really it's the tone. I fell in love with the tone of what Andy Muschietti did with the it coming of age portion of that movie and the, and the visuals of that, how it was shot. I think that fits Superman really well, but it's the tone and you still get a coming of age in the beginning. You still get his struggle because he's Superman. But uh, to me, I just think it was shot very well. I think he captured this kind of what I would call almost like an eighties, like, but modernized style, I guess. And uh, at least as far as how it felt with like the Goonies type thing and like that type of thing. So that's really what I was getting with, with Andy Muschietti. But as far as seeing the same story again, people kind of did, they did want that with Man of Steel. That was like the argument of why people didn't like it as much as you were telling the story and you, you changed too much. You didn't tell it in the right way. So to a lot of people, you haven't seen the right origin story of Superman since 1978. Um, so that you want one that you that like people would be more willing to show to their kids and not have the darker elements, not have Superman uh, breaking Zod's neck and all that. So it's just kind of getting back to basics and rebooting Superman so you can go off and tell stories you haven't done before, like Brainiac. Um, and I think the um, the way you do Lex Luthor is going to be very com compelling. And Viggo Mortensen, I think this could be like an Oscar level. Uh, performance type thing. I think Vigo's awesome. He's been nominated many times. Uh, you also get a battle with him at the end because everyone, everyone says, why don't you just have Lex, you know, in the suit? I think that would be a lot of fun. And I think that would be a great battle. You get his, him designing that you get him researching Superman. Um, so I think you get a different movie and I think you get the modernized elements with him running for president. And that actually brings a lot of people. Uh, we're in a very political time right now. And even if it's not, specifically like calling out one side or the other it does have those elements in there and you're like well you do have this businessman he's calling out aliens you get that modern element in there so that it's not it doesn't just feel like a 1978 movie all right all right i'm i'm uh, i'm stepping in here because I, I made up my mind and we're almost 30 minutes in on our first pitch so that's that's a problem um uh, and you got anything to uh to add to this you you have a uh if you were to choose you know who you'd pick even without the uh, the Superman knowledge, um, there was a lot, a lot to swallow. Hopefully, I'll be able to make more decisive and give more points for the next one. I think I knew about a third of the way through, but um, I might go with I. I think I would. I for me, I would go see Bobby's as of right now. All right, yeah, here, here's my thing. Broken down, I mean, you both handed Superman to a more capable director than Zack Snyder, who 
is a terrible director and should never have ever been in charge of, you know, anything in DC. Um, But here's my problem with, with, with Tristan's Um, the Russos have moved on to way bigger and better things than community community had one good season and then it got it got worse and worse as the show went on. Troy and Abed are the best thing that show is going for it. That's the only reason to even turn that show on anymore. So seeing, yeah, like I would, uh, Alex Cover says, would have liked to see Abed as Superman. If you made it basically a Troy and Abed movie, if you actually felt the need to connect its community, sure. But like Joe McHale is just like average white dude, and you made him Superman, who is basically Boy Scout superhero. So you didn't really add to the character and you honestly kind of, you lost me at connecting your pitch to community. The rule is use the cast of a sitcom. It's not turn the sitcom into a movie. This is what lost Bobby his point on his scrubs anaconda pitch from a few weeks back. It does not, it it does not and should not have anything to do with the sitcom. It should just be the cast of it. You could have cast it better. I didn't like where you put your people Bobby had much more to choose from um, with a with a larger with a larger cast, but as soon as he said Vigo Mortensen is Lex Luthor, I did really like that pick. So, so I think uh, for Bobby, uh, I think he used the rule better, and I, I liked his cast a lot better. Uh, so I'm going to go with Bobby for for the first point. All right, I, that so, was one. Of, that was my longest written out one, just to say. So I got it out early. All right, starting off, starting off long. I, I I love to see it. So yeah, we're thirty minutes in, and Tristan, what's our what's our second movie? Uh, let's go with The Exorcist. All right, and I'll go perfect. second. One of my shortest cool. written ones. All right, that that's good. Okay, The Exorcist is from nineteen seventy three. It only has an eighty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is super low to me. Um, the Exorcist is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, it's one of my favorites, uh, and it uh, IMDb describes it as. When a 12-year-old girl is possessed by a, a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her. Uh, it stars Linda, Linda Blair, Max von Sydow, um, and it's directed by William uh, Friedkin. So uh, Tristan said he'd go second. So Bobby, what's your pitch for The Exorcist? All right. <clears throat> so I kept this one relatively simple because I think The Exorcist is fantastic. Um, I don't really want to parody it. Um, I also don't really want to make some cheap remake. I want to give it to someone who I think can do it justice. And to me, that was Guillermo del Toro. Uh, So that's my rule. I'm making this a Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, My Chris McNeil, who was Ellen Burst in the original, I have Jessica Chastain, uh, who worked with him in Crimson Peak. Um, Father Damien Karras, uh, who is Jason Miller, I have Ron Perlman. Uh, Regan, who is the kid, Linda Blair. I have Ivy George, who is in Big Little Lies, and she's very good in that. Uh, plays a good dramatic role, and she can also kind of be that cute and dramatic, depending on which scene you're you're doing. Uh, Father Langster Marin, who is Max von Sydow. I have Richard Jenkins, who worked with him in Shape of Water. Um, and then my uh, Burke Dennings, who is uh, the director of the movie, who dies kind of early on. That's going to be Doug Jones, and as an actual person, just because he likes to work with him, and he's going to give him a role as a human this time. Um, but I want to basically make this a the same general plot. Uh, the one kind of changes because they're, they're shooting this movie. That's kind of why that's why they're there. Uh, the house they're staying in, in this movie is going to be similar, similar to the house in Crimson peak. It's going to be this very Gothic old house. So you get some great visuals 
and some weird places for when she's going through her like possession um, kind of to be in the shadows. It'll just visually, because Crimson Peak is not a great movie because it's kind of a weird love story, but the way it looks is what I'm going for. The visuals of that house is where I want to basically make the setting of this movie. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's a dark Guillermo del Toro R-rated, not because it's super gruesome, but you know, just no restrictions. He can kind of do whatever he wants. It can be, um, you know, gross if he needs it to be with the throwing up and th things like that. He just, he just doesn't need to hold back anything when there might be blood and stuff like that. Um, but it's not going to be overly gruesome. It's just going to be the dark Guillermo del Toro horror tones like Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth and that. Um, Roger Deakins is my cinematographer. Uh, I just want it to be this very visually stunning retelling of the story with some great actors, uh, practical effects because it's Guillermo. Um, and it's just, that's pretty much it. I want to tell this story and scare modern audiences. All right. All right, Tristan, uh, what do you got? So for my exorcist, I use the director of Lee Winnell, who just did uh, The Invisible Man. I think he did a good job capturing horror, but also capturing the, the sort of uh, gaslighting theme I'm going to go for with my movie, because mine's going to star Har Harleen Quinzel. As my rule, I'm using Harley Quinn in my exorcist movie. She's going to be a type A psychiatrist who's called on to investigate a, a possession in her local town. She's attached to science. She's very devoted to science, to scientific, scientific explanations for all her problems. So she's coming to this as a scientist and not as a believer. She's insisting there's a practical explanation to this. And throughout the movie, we're tracking her as our main character. She's interacting with this young boy who was possessed by a demon. And we follow her through her days on the case between talking to this demon-possessed child and trying to come to a rational explanation and going back to her house and seeing these strange occurrences at her house. Uh, she sees gifts left for her. She's hearing laughter at night. She's seeing chairs and shelves moving around. Stuff's not really where she left it. She's convinced that maybe this demon might be coming to get her. So she's having this internal conflict of, well, I'm supposed to be a realist, but there are these inexplicable things happening to me in my life that are conflicting with my worldview. And she's bringing this up to her family and to her friends and they're all telling her like, oh, you know, I think it's just your job is getting to you. You're going a little crazy. You're, maybe you should get a job more befitting to a woman because, you know, maybe you're not fitting in this whole man's world of, a, of psychiatry. But meanwhile, she's continuing to be increasingly intrigued by this person she's treating. He's telling her sympathetic stories of his life, how he was abused as a child. And she's trying to use all of these little anecdotes to rationalize him and to rationalize his actions and say, see, this is not a possessed person. This is just a man who's crazy. And we're tracking a similar plot structure. It's, it's sort of this back and forth of her life. We, we sort of intercutting between her talking to this person and her at her house. And by the end, she, she does treat this person. And there is an exorcism scene where the demon leaves this child. But by the end, Harley, Harley Quinn is no longer going by Harleen Quinzel. She's going by Harley Quinn. So you're left to wonder if the demon may have transferred to her to turn her into Harley Quinn, or if she just sort of lost her mind and became Harley Quinn through this harrowing experience. And that's my pitch. All right. Okay. Interesting. Um, Ange, initial thoughts. I 
I liked the gothic theme in Bobby's for like the visuals. I'm definitely a visual person. I, I do have a question about Tristan's pitch when it comes to, is the person who's possessed a child or an adult? I would have it be like a young man, you know, sort of like, I would, I would subvert it. So it's not a child. It's sort of like, you know, in his, in his early twenties, maybe someone closer to her age. Is the is I, the guy is the guy possessed supposed to have any relation to like the Joker, or is it just some random? Not guy? directly, but I think it's supposed to be thematically connected. They're supposed to wonder if maybe this kid is the Joker, but I wouldn't use the name directly. I wouldn't have it be oh here's the Joker. He's coming out in his clown makeup at the end. But I would have it be similar thematically connected. Okay, I definitely appreciate the reimagination when it comes to like the tying in of she's a psychiatrist, when she starts to doubt and go against what she thinks, they're telling her maybe you need a new industry. I I liked that pitch. That was, I think, my favorite one of the All right. And then, um, so then my question, I, I kind of want to clear it for Bobby is, I get you changed like how the movie looks, but I feel like every possession movie, the only good possession movie ever made is The Exorcist. Every other possession movie is like complete trash because it tries to be so similar. The only one I would say is mildly interesting and I enjoyed was probably The Last Exorcist where it was a question of, oh, is this just like, is this actually like a a demon spawn or is this just some crazy like incestual thing? And that was super different than The Exorcist. So I liked it. Why is yours, what's the point of your movie being made if all of if the whole point is, okay, it's going to be a very similar story, very similar movie, but we're just going to change the setting. Um, I mean, really, you want to keep some some classics you really want to keep in mind. And one of the reasons, yeah, it's tough to make a possession movie great when you're doing The Exorcist without calling it The Exorcist because you leave out a lot of the things that made that movie special, a lot of the scares, a lot of the style. Um, and I feel like you need to keep, like, show why this story is scary. Bring, you know, you bring in the religious elements. Guillermo is great um, as far as bringing tone to the movie and just making you feel tense. Like what is going on? What is she going to do next? Uh, It's just, you I just really want, I want this story to be told with modern filmmaking because it's a, it is a great story that needs to be told and keeps needing to be told. Um, like I, I don't need to see as far as like a, a different take on it. Cause it, like you said, like even Tristan's pitch, it's just another possession movie at that point with maybe a different twist. Um, I want to get back to the original and say, this is why people keep making these possession movies. Cause that original story is scary. Okay. Um, all right. So you two kind of duke it out for a little bit. My um, response is that, the Exorcist was scary because of when it came out and because of how different it was and what was around it and that there was never a movie like that when it came out. So I think if you just tape The Exorcist almost as it was and make it now, it's just going to look like every single other horror movie that's come out in the last, since The Exorcist, you know, I've seen hundreds of possession movies and a lot of them do bring in religious elements. You know, The Conjuring was very religious oriented and it's a good movie, but it's not The Exorcist. And I think if you bring The Exorcist out right now, people are just going to say, well, I saw this already. I've seen this in The Conjuring. I've seen this in a hundred other times. And I think if you're just if you're going to remake a movie, especially The Exorcist, you want to do something interesting with it. And I think if you just take it and do the same story, but with 
Del Toro behind the camera, like sure it might look good, but it's just gonna be the same exact plot of every single possession movie you've seen. But one of the reasons that a lot of modern horror movies are bad and the way they do it is one, they rely very heavily on jump scares and two, they use very heavy CGI and show this weird creature all the time, including in a lot of modern possession movies. Um, they do weird CGI things that just doesn't look scary. Um, I think getting back to basics with the way Guillermo shoots his movies and uses so many practical effects, like you mix, you always mix CGI to like touch things up in that. But if you have a, you know, you get someone that's a stunt stunt woman in there like that, and that can um, do these crazy things the way they, she's climbing down the stairs or like weird things like that. If you think there's this little 12, 13 year old girl going crazy and it looks legitimate, doesn't look CG. I think that'll show people what you can still do to make scary movies without relying on CGI. Um, with your movie, really, it just, it's not enough of, it's not really the exorcist. And it's also messing up Harley Quinn's origin story. Um, you don't, even if you're like kind of hinting that it might be the Joker, then you're saying the Joker was maybe possessed, which I don't, I think also kind of ruins the Joker. Um, and then also you're taking Harley Quinn, who is, she is most interesting when she is Harley Quinn. And you are making her a psychiatrist for most of the movie. So you may as well not even have it be her. Like Harley Quinn is the crazy, quirky, um, you know, Mr. J kind of character. Um, and that's what people would really want to see of her. They don't want to see her as much as a scientist unless you're doing the Harley Quinn origin story as the comics told. And part of the movie, she's, Har she's Harleen Quinzel and she transitions to Harley by the end of the movie. I don't want to see a whole movie as her just as a psychiatrist. One is not using the character, really. Harley Quinn is Harley Quinn. Harleen Quinzel is almost a completely different person. Um, I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying it's a cheat to the rule. I'm just saying when you, you should use that character to the best of her ability would be my thing. I think okay. getting a origin story of Harley Quinn like this is interesting. I think, I mean, we've seen Harley Quinn a lot and I think what we haven't really seen is a more complex look at her her motivations and her character and what made her this way i think her relationship with the joker and her origin story there is what's most criticized about her character so i think this could be an interesting way to tell that in a way that doesn't belittle her a way that doesn't take away her power but in a way that still is scary and in a way that still roots itself in possession movies like the exorcist but that then defeats yeah. the purpose because part of her story is once she becomes harley quinn uh, a lot of the modern ones is she is able to break away from the Joker and the things that made her that way so she can become her own person. If she doesn't have that to break away from, you're also ruining her arc. All right. I think I think I made up my, my mind on this. But be before I, I do, we have a few uh, uh, live comments. So, uh, Joe, running things behind the scenes, what are live comments? Joe That's says, right. sometimes I wonder if Johnny has medium takes on movies. Johnny seems to live in a binary world where every movie is great or trash. Yes, he does. Um, I on mean, honestly, uh, yeah, not not wrong. Uh, Johnny definitely does not have medium takes on movies or anything for that matter. Yeah, I don't have medium takes. Medium <laughs> takes are lame. Everything's either great or terrible. So, I don't know. Kind of depends. Um, uh, Joe also says, my vote doesn't count, but it would go to Tristan. Um, and honestly, I'm I'm leading Joe's way. I kind of got to talk myself through it. But um, Ange, uh, what what are you thinking after this? I I'm not a movie traditionalist, so I think mm -hmm. I am going from the outlook of what I would really want to see. And I'm not I've not I haven't seen any of the Harley Quinn movies. I 
I really like Tristan's movie for this one. That one's mine. It's just, it's a little different. I, I know it does kind of, I liked the valid point of it is might maybe just another horror movie, but I feel like it's one that I would want to see still. Okay. Um, here's my thing. Joe just said, I don't have medium takes, but I think both these movies sound super average. Um, <laughs> neither of them blew me away. Neither of them sound great, but neither of them sound bad. I would go see them. And uh, maybe one, maybe one hits me more than the other. Um, I think, uh, Bobby, who who is your your lead like priest? Who is your main father? Who in the original ends up jumping out the window? Um, so my father, Damien Karras, was that. So Jason Miller was Ron Perlman, and then uh, Max von Sydow's character was Richard Jenkins. Okay, I was going to say Richard Jenkins would be great for for the yeah. priest one. I just missed that, but. I don't know. I think um, I, I liked uh, Lee Winnell, uh as a director. I, I think uh, The Invisible Man uh, was like a surprisingly good movie. They've been trying to reboot all of these uh, universal uh, monster movies forever, and they finally did one that, that worked and, and brought it to modern audiences. Um, I, I felt like Bobby Yours just stuck too close to the original and just changed it to a gothic setting. I don't love changing uh, Harley Quinn's origin story because I think it's very interesting that, you know, she is the psychiatrist Harleen Quinzel. She falls in love with the Joker and he manipulates her to become Harley Quinn, this evil villain. That's her origin story. But if we're going to go a different way with her origin story, I like the way you went with it. I like the possession being brought into it. I like that you kind of did that. We already have what? we have suicide squad. We have birds of prey. We have another suicide squad movie coming out. We have the cartoon of Harley Quinn. We don't have anything with Harleen Quinzel. We don't have real good, you know, origin story type of stuff. So I like that Tristan embraced that. And I like that he made his, uh, more, my point was essentially going to go to whoever made theirs more different and interesting than the original exorcist. And I felt like Tristan did that. So I think Tristan wins this one and he's going to tie it up uh, uh, one-to-one. So um, Bobby, what, what is our, what is our next movie? All right. Um, I think I'm going to go with Ferris Bueller's day off uh, and I'll go first on this one since. Uh, okay. Or actually, no, you know what? I went first. You've been going first. I'm going to make, I'll have Tristan yeah, go first. Yeah, yeah. All right. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, we did this on our show before. Uh, Joe and I did. I think it was on our test episode. So it's nice to have it have it return and uh, be able to judge on it. So we'll see if any of you can uh, impress me more than myself on my horror movie slasher movie Ferris Bueller pitch from from a while back. Um, but this movie received an eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it is uh, described by IMDb as a high school. Wise guy is determined to have a day off from school, despite what the principal thinks of that. Um, and it stars uh, Matthew Broderick, Alan Rock, and Mia Sarah. It was written and directed by John Hughes. So, Tristan, you're starting us off. What do you What do you uh, got for me in your pitch? My Ferris Bueller's Day Off is written and directed by Wes Anderson, and it stars Timothy Calame as literally every role in the movie. Because my rule is that one actor is going to play every role. Uh, it stars Timothy Calame as obviously Ferris Bueller. Uh, he's a fast-talking high school slacker who recounts his most outlandish ditch day ever. And he plays every single role because it's all set in his head. 
And as we go along, we're realizing that this is so ridiculous and so absurd that it probably never happened. But if it did, he's exaggerating it to greater and greater effect to make himself seem more and more cool. So we're seeing him go around Chicago on these various adventures with his friends and running into his family. But the whole way around is Timothy Calamay playing these various different characters. And I think it could be a great way. Timothy Calamay has a good amount of range for a very early uh, career actor. And he's coming up in a new Wes Anderson movie now where he's playing a seemingly much different character than we've seen before too. So I think giving this guy up and, who's an up-and-comer a chance to really stretch not only his acting range of these different characters, but also the comedic abilities of him. Because I think if you're going to have one character or one actor play every character, you have to be sort of comedic because unless you're doing something like CGI, like a like an Andy Serkis type movie, you, you people are going to notice that it's the same person. And I think if you're trying to get someone to take that seriously, they're not going to. So I think Wes Anderson can, can capture that sort of absurdity of these strange, quirky characters all played by one person in very different ways. And I think Timothy Calamay is a great guy to pull it off. That's my pitch. Cool. Um, first of all, uh, I had to look up who Timothy Calloway was. And I was like, I'm hearing that wrong. It's Timothy Chalamet. Timothy so, Chalamet. T- Timothy Chalamet. Um, great actor. Made more sense when I looked up. I was like, wait, I got to figure out well, who he's talking about. I think he's going to write the first Calum. time said Calumet. It was, it, was a little, it was a little all over the place. But okay, so Timothy Chalamet in a Wes Anderson movie playing every character. I understand that pitch, and I, I like it. So, Bobby, what do, you, what do you got for me? All right, so my Ferris Bueller's Day Off is going to be directed by Olivia Wilde, who just did Booksmart. Um, I like that tone for this type of movie. Um, my Ferris Bueller is going to be Jack Dylan Grazier from Shazam and it. Um, and he's 17 years old. I I don't really want people in their twenties playing high schoolers in this one. I kind of want to make it a little more realistic. Um, my Cameron is going to be Wyatt Olaf, who is Stanley in it, who plays awkward very well. Um, so kind of a little bit of a bringing those two back together here. My Sloan is going to be played by Angori Rice, who is the daughter in the nice guys, and she's also in Spider-Man Far From Home. She's all, They're also all like right around set between 17 and 19. Um, and she is awesome. She was uh, amazing in The Nice Guys um, and plays, I think she can play that role pretty well. My Jeannie Bueller, the sister, is going to be played by Joey King, who is very popular right now on a lot of Netflix movies um, and is kind of being touted as one of the next up-and-coming actresses. Uh and then my my Ed Rooney Johnny, if you're listening as you're walking around your house, um, I had to I had to get something. I'm listening. I left yeah. my headphones in. All right. Well, my Ed Rooney, the crazy um, principal who is chasing down Ferris, is going to be played by Nicolas Cage because I think he can oh, yeah. he can bring that kind of craziness that um, Ed Rooney has in that first one, but also can be a pretty straight up, you know. Uh, look, seeming uh, principal at times, but can when he's facing Ferris down, he can go into those cageisms. Um, so my setup in the beginning is very similar. He's going to break the fourth wall. Uh, he wants to. He has no absences left. He wants to take a day off. He convinces uh, Cameron and Sloan to join him, and his sister is jealous. Same kind of thing. But on their way, uh, they they steal Cameron's car, and they and Cameron and Sloan at or Cameron's dad's car. They ask where they're going, and he says, "You'll see." They pull up to a gated building, and it's revealed that this is Willy Wonka's, or in this case, Charlie's, chocolate factory. 
Um, Ferris has been wanting to see the factory since he missed out on the golden ticket competition that the owner, Charlie, at this point was trying to pat was, uh, that he put on a few years ago. He was trying to pass down his uh, factory now that he is older on to the next person like Willy Wonka did to him, um, but did not find anyone that he thought was worthy. Um, once they're there, so this is basically all the hijinks that are instead that were in Chicago. It's a bunch of hijinks inside this factory. So that's where people know, like the the um, Ed Rooney, the principal, realizes that's where he is. Uh, you know, so that basically all the hijinks and stuff and the chasing and all that happens there. You have references to the first one where you have them breaking into an Oompa Loompa dinner and they convince them that they are the new, that they're the health inspectors that were let in by Charlie, kind of like they were convincing them that he was the sausage king of Chicago. So you have that kind of premise. Um, and basically it's, it's those hijinks and craziness. And you have these great teens interacting in the style of Booksmart. Uh, and at the end, um, it is revealed that um, Charlie had been watching the whole time and sees that Ferris, even though he's mischievous, has a great heart. Um, and he said he's going to take him on as essentially an understudy to end up to see if he's worthy to take over the factory, which was Ferris's dream when he missed out on that the first time. So there's my pitch. All right. Um, my first thoughts are this. Joe sent me. His list, he basically did not pitches, but he matched every movie um, and did short little little uh, you know intros of all of them with with every rule. And Joe and I agreed on this movie because I think this movie would have been amazing as a Guillermo del Toro movie, where instead of Chicago, it's like a fantastical Guillermo del Toro world that they go on adventures in. Interesting. So I was waiting for one of you to do that, but uh, neither of you did. So if Joe was on here, he might have uh, might have won because he would have pitched what I wanted to see. But uh, I'm interested in both your pitches. I, I like both of them. Ange, what is uh, your take on them? I knew off the bat Timothy Chalamet, even though I've never said it out loud. I've said it in my head so many different ways. I just hear the ch and I get it. I really enjoyed that. I like it. I feel like he has that kind of transformative weird look, but... I definitely appreciate the realistic age of Bobby's actors and to the in respect in respect to the characters, because that's something that like I feel like is important for the industry to kind of hopefully move towards one day. Uh, Nicholas Cage, always a fave. All you gotta say is the name, and I'm in. So I'm. It's a hard one. Couldn't be a full time judge. Um. Also, my other rule I would have used for this movie is your you know, Mr. Rooney type character looking for Ferris should have been Charlie Sheen and called back to the original movie. I know an interview used the the right rule, but both of you use rules. I would not have connected to this. So um, my, my first question, Tristan um, real quick, just, I understand that everything is happening in uh, like Ferris Bueller's head. I think that's a good idea, but, so what's so good about the original Ferris Bueller is his interaction with Cameron and the people around him. How is your movie going to still hold my interest when it's just the same actor playing all those characters? I think you play them all very differently. And I think that would make the interactions just as fun because you're getting this one character who, or this one actor who's playing all these different characters and you're getting them to interact on screen together. And people always kind of love when there's something like in Fargo season three, you had two Ewan McGregor's or, 
something like that where you have the same actor playing two roles but still interacting with each other. So I think that would be really fun. Okay. And then um, Bobby, uh, I, I don't – I got your pitch, but I don't completely understand the connection to – Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and how it's still Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, uh, I, I don't understand the bringing it in because it has a connection with Charlie and things like that. I, 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 I think, to me, it would have made more sense if you just said he has a day off so they go to the Chocolate Factory. But I think you brought in too many connections. Why does that improve the movie to you? Because I think if, if it was just, oh, they go to the factory – um, I feel like it would be it would it would be very shoehorned. I feel like into it, but what I want to do is this is essentially it's like it's in the world that in this world Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory existed, which means that Charlie had been running it, so he does the same competition. So it's just any any kid or high schooler or anyone around that time would have grown up liking the factory. So he it's still his day off. He still has the same thing, and it's his personality. He they're going there, getting into hijinks. It's just that if he just went there and then left, the factory would not have been. It's like why? Why did they kind of go to the factory? Uh, you would kind of wonder why they didn't visit a bunch of different places. This is like the reason they're staying in the factory is because he's been obsessed with it for so long, um, and and so you kind of get that. It kind of it justifies that this is why he's going there, and this is what he would choose to do when he could have gone anywhere, um, and because. Like I said, I just wanted it to instead of feel like oh shoehorned all of a sudden oh I guess Charlie's chocolate or Willy Wonka's chocolate factory is here. Just it makes sense to the story. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Uh, you two battle out for just a few a few minutes because I sorry I kind of got an idea of where you're going. Um, so with yours, Tristan, I just feel like. Again, like Johnny said, the one of the best things about the original is the interaction with a bunch of different actors and characters and personalities, um, especially, you know, between the friends and then you have the crazy principal. Um, and even though Timothy, Timothy Chalamet is a great actor, he hasn't necessarily shown like full on comedy chops to like to, to he, he plays a lot of very heavy, dramatic roles. He shows charisma, but. I don't think he can differentiate himself enough yet um, for this. I, he's also too old for me for, for to play the high schooler. Um, and I don't really want to see a trippy dream version uh, being John Malkovich type thing with Ferris Bueller's Day Off when I want to see him interact with a bunch of different people. Um, I want it to actually be his day off. I want to see his actual adventures. I don't want to see what he would think of it in his head i want to see it come to life because okay so what happens at the end he wakes up and okay it was all in his head like so what's so why like what what's the what was the point of that other than maybe he did he learn a lesson in his dream is that it i mean that that's kind of seems lame to me well i think a lot of what ferris bueller's day off is is that you're seeing these crazy high stakes hijinks like he's in a little parade in downtown chicago like that's not ever going to really happen in real life and i think when you place that in somebody's head, you're getting this idea of the character. You're seeing that he has this sort of inflated ego that he thinks he's the greatest and he thinks that he's so, so cool. And I think Timothy Calamay can pull that off. He hasn't, like you even said yourself, he has the charisma to do it. And I think charisma is super important in a role like this when you're playing all kinds of different characters. 
I think if you have the charisma and you have the range, you can do it. I think you can play all these characters. The interactions will still be there because you'll have him playing these vastly different characters with the charisma level that he has. And I think you can suck people in. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there, we're going to, I feel like both of our arguments are going to go very similarly. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know which, which other ways you have to go. So what I'm going to do, I'm, I have some live comments to go to. So, so I'm going to do that. Um, and I think my consulting judge has to run out for a second. So thank you so much. Evan, uh, who I, I think I high five when I was grabbing some beer from my fridge said, it's all right, guys, I'm here now. So that's good. He's in my basement. If oh. anyone hears the TV going, it's because of, uh, them out there. Uh, Michael, our brother also says, Willy Wonka is the best movie to contain child murder. Uh, false. Uh, actually probably true. Because it's that, and then probably the new It movies. So, it's a great child slasher movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a, a fantastic child slasher movie. I wish you to embrace that horror movie. I would do that. Yeah, yeah. If we had, yeah, if we had to make one a horror movie, William Wonka's the Chocolate Factory. You know, Joe and I. Joe also texted me that he would have made it. Uh, um, in The Exorcist, he would have had them go to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, and basically they eat some candy and it possesses her. And they have to, and they like terrorize the Oompa Loompas. So I did like that idea. So shout out to Joe for his pitch on on that that he that he texted me. Um, I, I thought that was interesting, but I knew that was not what either of you would do because you're sane human beings. Yeah. But you're both insane because these pitches are are wild. Um, okay, here here's my thing. When Tristan started, I was like. There's no way a Ferris Bueller's movie would be good with only one actor. Movie movie changeup just commented, aka the podcast where I'm just that rude. So I don't know what the hell that was. Um, but I feel like the fun of Ferris Bueller is the interaction between the characters. So when Tristan said that it was going to be one actor, I was like, "Ooh, this is going to be tough to win me back," but. I did like his explanation. I liked that Ferris Bueller has this big ego, so it would all be in his head. I think he picked a talented enough actor that could pull off different characters with Timothy Chalamet. Um, so, so I enjoyed that. And and Bobby with yours, um, I don't know. It, it, I think yours would have been better if you said Ferris Bueller won the golden ticket but couldn't get the day off of school and had to play hooky to go to the chocolate factory. And while he's in this competition, you know, uh, Mr. Rooney and, and whatever is looking for him, he's trying to play the I'm home, but I'm also at this chocolate factory trying to win it. I didn't uh, think your connections to the uh, chocolate factory made it any better, but uh, I, I could have seen where you, where you went with the rule, but I didn't think you used it as well as you could have. So Tristan, I, I'm going to pick you and you're going to go up two to one uh, for, for this, uh, for this pitch. Okay. Again, that is something I did think about, but I didn't want to make it a Charlie and the or Willy Wonka movie. I, but uh, you know what? Hey, Hey, you know, I made my jaws. My jaws. Willy Wonka was literally a Willy Wonka movie. So I think it would be interesting to see instead of Charlie in the chocolate factory, who is this selfless kind person, I was waiting for you to pitch 
basically that similar movie, but Ferris, who is a completely selfish, arrogant dude going into there and being the main character and trying to get through Charlie and the Chocolate, like the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and I just didn't think yours, yours connected as much with that. So, so I like Tristan's pitch. I, 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 uh, I, I think he got the win there. So Bobby, what are, what are we doing next and who's going first? Uh, let's do cats. Um, and oh uh, I'll, I'll say that I'll have Tristan go first and Johnny, just so you know, cause you were not here last week or in the post conversation, Tristan loves this movie. So I want to see what he does with this. Wait. Okay. First of all, he loves the movie Cats. Tristan's a psycho. <laughs> Second of all, Cole McNeely says Mike's wrong. Infinity War is definitely the best movie with child murder. <laughs> Just saying. First of all, Michael says Fairpoint Cole McNeely, but you're both wrong because uh, Willy Wonka and Chuck Factory is a better movie than Infinity War. So give me that shit. Anyway, back to the what cat. are we doing? Fucking cats. We're doing cats, and apparently Tristan enjoys this movie. Yeah. So yeah. I'm very movie. interested in seeing someone who has a bad opinion against someone who understands this movie is bad and repitching it. I'm interested to see what happens. Who's going first? I forget. I said Tristan can go because I want to I want to <laughs> take in his pitch and then you can hear a good one. <laughs> okay, I'll fill in uh, Angelica with anything she she needs to know about this pitch. All right. Well, my cat's movie is directed by Guillermo del Toro. Is Johnny going to give up? <laughs> is Johnny going to give up a this one? By the way, what did you say? You're going to give us a rundown of this movie? Oh God, I I, bet. I I probably should, right? If you can call it a movie. All right. This movie somehow got a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm assuming that's because Tristan has Rotten Tomatoes power and is a critic on there um, and made it more positive than it should be. Um, And this is uh, described by IMDb as a tribe of cats called the, the, oh, I don't fucking know what the The hell is it. The Jellicles must decide yearly which one will ascend to the, heavy side lair and come back to a new jellical life. That makes no fucking sense. This movie's stupid. It stars Judy Dench uh, and her human hands and it's directed, if you can call it that, by Tom Hooper. Um, so that this movie got made and it was just completely panned. It is, uh, without even needing to see it, I know it's one of the worst movies ever made. It was in... Uh, it's just kind of a joke of a thing that happened, and it's and it's pretty funny. It lost the studio a, a lot of money, um, and uh, we'll we'll see your pitches on it. Try to make cats interesting because it's going to be very difficult for both of you. The first time I saw cats, it was in a rowdy screening where the whole sold out crowd gets insanely drunk beforehand and then just roasts the movie as you watch it. So I like completely fell in love with that experience. <laughs> And that I makes way more sense. Bobby sold it differently. Bobby sold it as you enjoyed the movie. <laughs> Your experience makes more sense to me. Well, mine's directed by Guillermo del Toro. We talked about it earlier. He's great yeah. at fantastical worlds, fantastical characters, and stuff like Shape of Water, stuff like Pan's Labyrinth that gives you these unreal worlds that roots you in the emotion of the characters. So in Shape of Water, he even made you care about this like crazy-looking, weird CGI creature thing that was still somehow cool it was like a mix of cgi a mix of actual 
costumes. So I think what made cats so incredibly terrifying was that it was just these weird CGI monster things that wouldn't even look like anything you ever want to see, like a nightmare. So I think Del Toro could actually make that look cool. He'd use a, a blend of practical costumes and CGI to make them not look like the field to line nightmares. And this version of cats follows a young girl named Catherine. And then movies narrated by Judy Dench. She's like an adult version of Catherine recalling this event from her childhood. She struggles with OCD and loneliness and she doesn't really make many friends. And recently her cat died. So she's been very depressed and very sad in her house, just playing with her stuffed animals, her stuffed animal cats, making up these stories of these cats. And late one night, she hears a rumbling noise and a flashing light in her closet. She gets scared and she approaches it and she opens the door and she's pulled through a portal into a fantasy world where her stuffed animal cats that she was playing with earlier have become fully realized performance captured cats. Cats now tell the story of Catherine living out her childhood adventures with these personified stuffed animal friends who each embody different elements of herself. So there's a character called Skimbleshanks in, the, in Cats that I made a perfectionist who maintains the local train around the city. And he struggles with being a perfectionist and not being able to deal with small, tiny perfections that kind of reflects Catherine's OCD. There's also Grizabella who is in Cats and I had her becoming here an aspiring performer who wants to be like a designer and wants to make these costumes and these sets, but she's afraid of rejections, just like Catherine's afraid. And there's also Mr. Mistopheles, who's a small, tiny cat that loves magic tricks, but he's always underestimated because of his small size and his quiet nature, something that I think Catherine relates to as a little girl. And similar to the original cats, it's sort of this like all these cats are trying to impress their leader cat and prove themselves to be the most jellical of all cats. <laughs> so in this, whoever is proven to be the most jellical cat gets to grant one wish. So Catherine aspires to have her one wish be that she's going to bring her cat who died back to life with her and they can live in this fantasy world forever. So Catherine eventually meets uh, this cat named uh, McCavity, who's the villain of cats. And in this, he's trying to be the one who gets that magical wish because he wants to be able to wish himself to be the leader of all the cats. And Catherine works along with her cat friends and helps them overcome their problems and their, their limitations. You know, she, she helps them overcome their fears and their flaws in a way that helps her overcome her own fears and flaws. And by the end, she meets this big holy cat who walks out and it turns out her is her cat who died. And the cat tells her like, oh, just because something is dead doesn't mean it has to be gone forever. They can live on in your heart, live on in your memories, live on in your dreams. And, you don't, and, it, and then she eventually decides that she has to wake up from this dream and she enlists all of the cats for their special abilities to help get her out of this fantasy world. So Skimble Shanks, he's the guy who runs a railway. He's cleaning up this railway car that's gonna become her like time portal out of this world. And uh, Grizabella, who's the, the glamour cat that decorates the inside of the train, makes it all nice and shiny and cool looking. And Mr. Mistopheles, who's a magician cat, he uses his magical powers to power up this train and teleport her back out through the portal into her childhood bedroom, back safe and sound. And since it's Del Toro, you get that element of, of dreamlike, the fantasy, the fairy tale world. It's not, you're not quite sure if this is wholly realistic, if this is just something that she dreamed up to deal with the death of her cat and to contemplate death as a kid. But either way, she's, she's overcome a lot of her personal flaws and she's now ready to live her life. And that's my pitch.
All right. All right. Okay. Uh, that was way too long of a pitch for cats. Bobby, what do you got for me? Make it short. a much shorter, a much shorter pitch. Um, so I'll just start with my rule. Cause you'll know as, I, as soon as I say the director, um, that I'm making this a Pixar movie. Um, it's going to be directed by Pete doctor. Um, and I just listed a few of the voice cast. Uh, my Victoria, the lead is going to be Zendaya. My Grizabella is still going to be Jennifer Hudson. Um, my old Deuteronomy is going to be Helen Mirren. My McCavity, the mystery cat, is John Malkovich. My Mr. Mistopheles is Tom Hanks. And my Bustopher Jones is John Ratzenberger, because you got to throw him in there. <laughs> um, so one of the biggest problems with cats is, one, the story as told in the movie, just, like, it doesn't make sense. And also they pick Grizabella, who's not, like, a main character at the end. She's the one that goes. Um, it's like this weird... It, you can't take it seriously, especially in live action with real people as cats. So these are actually going to be cats. They're Pixar cats, but they're not humanoid weird creatures. Um, so this is going to have the same general plot where you have, um, they're trying to become a Jellicle cat because you can't really change that. But mine's going to be more of a buddy movie between Victoria and Grizabella. I'm bringing Grizabella in as more of a main character to be with Victoria. They're friends throughout. Um, and Victoria's goal is to become part of the Jellicles, and Grizabella's goal is to help her. Um, so it's basically, it's the same general idea, trying to get there. It's a Pixar movie, you have sad moments and stuff like that. Um, and, and at the end, it's realized that uh, Victoria is really not the one that, she realizes she's not the one that deserves to go. It really is Grizabella, because she wanted to go for selfish reasons. Um, and Grizabella was selfless the whole time, just trying to help her friend. So she tells Grizabella how to, to, to say what she really feels. And that's when she sings her, her uh, memories song, which is like the big song in the movie. Uh, and she gets sent up to be with the Jellicles while Victoria stands, stays behind. So there's my movie. It's a, it's a, it's a movie about um, being selfless and, and, and not being you know, selfish, re- helping your friends uh, and looking after one another. Interesting. All right, um, Angelica, you like real life cats uh, more than I do. So, what what does that have to do with this movie? I've never seen real life cats, but oh wait, no, okay. I mean, like the actual animal. You like cats? Oh, Oh, love cats. Love. Not a fan. Um, Even though I have a tiger shirt on. (laughs) I think I. I liked both pitches. Um, I I like what you did with. I like what they, was done with like the idea of cats because what in the world was like I liked how Bobby did it. Pixar, uh, you say Zendaya's name and I'm in the theater. Yeah, I like it. That was a good one. Unless it's uh, the Greatest Showman. Um, here's my thing. You guys can kind of duke it out, but I'm, I'm leaning towards Bobby because he made his about real cats. And the only thing I have about cats that's interesting is like in inside out the, the cat scene at the end when they go into the, the, the cat's brain is really funny. So I'm just going to assume Bobby embraces that with Pixar and, mm-hmm. uh, Tristan, I don't need to see Guillermo del Toro waste his time and talent on anything involving the worst musical in the history of mankind. So you two duke it out and see if you change my mind. I'm going to give you like two minutes. Yeah. So I want to start with this because 
one, the creepiest and the, the thing with cats, you're never going to make those humanoid cats look good on screen. It can be fine in a play where you have people in costume, but even one, you still kept it motion capture. It's not going to look yeah. good. <laughs> um, the um, Guillermo del Toro does not need to do this movie. Uh, the like He just does not need to waste his time on it. Um, the plot overall of Cats is ridiculous and dumb, and it's just people introducing themselves over and over. And your lead character doesn't do anything. Um, and then she's not even the one that goes at the end. So I like mine with that. You have a buddy kind of um, Pixar comedy drama. It's what they do best. You, you, like Johnny said, you embrace kind of the comedy that you can do with cats. You, you have the sad ending. You have a great message, and you get to sing the songs. That's all you need. That'll make people happy. Well, one, I think Pixar Cats is like the most boring rule of choice possible on this whole episode. So I think that you didn't we're very creative with the rule of choice. And I also think that I did not use motion capture. I used a blend of practical effects and CGI. I used some performance capture. I made it rooted in what El Toro does best. He doesn't he doesn't rely like overly on CGI. He does things that look cool and look real, but still have some CGI to enhance them. Like in Hellboy, like in. You just can't make human cats look good for a whole movie. Well, El Toro did cheap enough. There's a reason the effects were not as good as they possibly could be. It's because that is too expensive. You can't do it. I think Del Toro could pull it off. He pulled it off in Hellboy. There were all kinds of crazy looking stuff in Hellboy that still was a smaller budget. I mean, he he pulled that movie off with ridiculous looking stuff. They're not great cats. And I think mine roots itself in this core main character. Like you said, the the ridiculousness of cats is that it's just these characters coming along, introducing themselves. And then the person who gets choice at the end isn't even a main character. And I think mine roots it with this main human in the middle of it, you're not looking at the cats the whole entire time. You're having this main woman character, this, this young girl. It's a human to connect you to the connect to the audience. So you're not just looking at cats the whole time. You have this human that's in there, and you're seeing it through her perspective. And I think when you're seeing it as this dreamlike state of a little girl's fantasy, I think if it looks a little weird, it looks a little big, it looks a little crazy, I think that's part of the fun of it. When you look at something like Pan's Labyrinth, it's not grounded in reality. It's grounded in this fairy tale fantasy. And I think Del Toro could really bring that element out and bring out the fun of Cats and like the ridiculousness of of that musical, you know, a Tony Award winning musical that ran on Broadway for decades. People go to see it because it's fun and ridiculous, not because they want to get like a heartfelt cry at this movie, Pixar movie. They want to see something that's kind of fun and kind of just big and crazy in a fantasy world. And I think Del Toro can bring that out of his story. All right. All right. We're we're done here. This is way too much time on on cats which is first of all probably the worst musical ever made and second of all one of the worst movies ever made and also a dumb animal um but i'm just kidding beyonce uh uh make a shocked face but okay first before i get to my ruling we have some comments let's get to those movie change up which is this podcast says 20 percent is 25 percent too high which is uh, about the Rotten Tomato score of Cats, which yeah. is uh, honestly 100% too high. So, wrong. Next. What do we got, Joe? Rocky Five is the best movie of all time, not child murder, but Rocky's son, Death, dies on the inside for sure <laughs> from Cole McNeely. 
Okay, that's a bad movie. I don't know what's going on here. All right, Cole McNeil says, I think what Katz was missing was Tommy Gunn, or a Tommy Gunn-esque character. I, I think I get where his comments are going the rest of the night. Okay, I don't know why he is so excited about Rocky Five, but Cole McNeil also says, okay, hear me out. Rocky trains a real cat to fight Tommy Gunn. It'll be called Rocky Cat Fight. Honestly, sounds way better than either of the pitches I got. Um, Joe Fergie says, uh, Cat should be a movie directed by Tommy Wiseau with him in every role. Let's make it so bad it's interesting. Um, yeah, Joe sent me that pitch beforehand. I was hoping one of you went with the let's make it so bad it's good um, because there's no possible way to make Cats interesting. It's a garbage. It's just garbage. It's total garbage. Like, so the only way to make it at least different is, hey, let's make it a Pixar movie. Like, Tristan's is like, let's waste Guillermo del Toro. No, thank you. Make him do something else. That just sounds terrible. And uh, Bobby, Pixar usually makes good movies. Not as much, you know, in the last, like, five, six years. But, you know, makes make some. But at least, like, they could do something with cats because you could make it a funny, like, hey, we're actually cats. I don't need cat people that look stupid and terrifying um, in, uh, in, uh, in Tristan's movie. So, Bobby, I'm giving you this point, uh, even though both pitches were, were unmakeable movies. Your hatred is right. I needed to be mine a slightly better unmakeable movie. So I got it. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was slightly, slightly better. So, you know, it, it's tied to two after, after that fun, uh, fun nonsense. So, so Tristan, uh, what are we, uh, what movie are we doing and uh, who is going first? Let me see. Let's do, let's do Jack and Jill and Bobby can go first. Jack and Jill. Good old, um, good old Jack and Jill, uh, a classic. Uh, somehow, only a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Shocking. Wow. Shocking. I'm honestly surprised that Cats wasn't a, uh, a, a 3%. So, um, To be fair, have you seen Cats or Jack and Jill? To be fair, no, I haven't. I don't waste my time. Um, okay, so it's uh, the the uh, IMDb description literally starts the words "Family Guy," which <laughs> which probably makes sense because that's probably the same type of humor. Family Guy Jack Saddlestein prepares for the annual event he dreads: the Thanksgiving visit of his fraternal twin sister, the needy and passive-aggressive Jill, who then refuses to leave. It stars Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler and Al Pacino. It's directed by Dennis Duggan. Um, when I first saw the preview for this movie, I thought it was an SNL skit. I thought it was a pretend thing that was not actually happening. But then that actually movie came out. So very interested to see if either of you could do could do anything with it. Um, I think Angelica's computer might have died. So she's gone for the moment. But um, we're, we're going to... Uh, Go with your pitches because uh, there's not much to know about Jack and Jill. Yeah, so, this, is, so this is the shortest. Um, well, actually, you know what? This is the second shortest one I wrote anything for. Um, okay. And, yeah, Jack and Jill's terrible. You really can't make a good, like, 
the way they did that movie and the type of humor, there's really no way to make that good. So what I'm going to do um, is my writer director is going to be Chris Rock, uh, who directed Top Five. And he is going to play every role in this movie because they did not go far enough with this. Um, <laughs> going to, if you're going to have that be the premise where you have the same actor and the twin sister, you may as well have him have them play every character in the movie. Um, so this is going to be a witty R-rated comedy with a relative visiting her her brother. Um, you have, you know, he has a wife and kids all played by Chris Rock because it is trippy and ridiculous and funny because Chris Rock, you can have the sarcasm and wit that he has. And then he also can do the ridiculous scenes that he includes in top five that come out of nowhere. Um, and really, that's all I have. It is Chris Rock entertaining you for an hour and a half comedy uh, with himself. And he's a great comedian. He can come up with funny bits. Um, and they just didn't go far enough. You really didn't. All right. Very, very interesting. Um, Tristan, what do you got for me for the classic Jack and Jill? Well, like you said this whole time, Jack and Jill is absolutely terrible. It's like unwatchably bad. So I decided to make it as problematic as I possibly could because it's, <laughs> it's going to be bad. You want to make it as bad as you possibly can make it. So my Jack and Jill is directed by Brian Singer. And it's written by a script from Woody Allen and produced by who else but the Weinstein Company. Jack is a trans man who was assigned female at birth and named Jill after birth before transitioning to become Jack. Jack is played by Scarlett Johansson. Jack's sister, Jill, is also trans. She was assigned male at birth and named Jack before she transitioned to be a woman named Jill. <laughs> so Jill is played by Adam Sandler. He's in a fat suit and wearing a dress the whole entire time. The story follows Jack, like I said, played by Scarlett Johansson. And Jack is a music video producer who shoots incredibly cheap music videos that are basically just softcore porn. And he enlists all these B-tier celebrities. So like the first Jack and, Dill, Jack and Jill had all this list of like depressing cameos from like Johnny Depp and stuff like that. And here's your chance to bring in R. Kelly. His big client is R. Kelly. So we meet, we meet Jack and R. Kelly while they're shooting a music video together. While R. Kelly is singing, Al Kelly is walking around singing and dancing with these extremely young dancers when Jack gets a phone call from his dad saying, I'm getting married, come to my wedding, I wanna see you again. So we get to the wedding and Jack and Jill are finally reuniting with their family. So uh, Jack's, Jack meets his father, who is a Mexican immigrant named Javier who came here illegally and is played by Mel Gibson. <laughs> Mel Gibson <laughs> throughout the whole movie has a really bad, really fake Mexican accent that he puts on for the whole entire time. So when they arrive at a wedding, they meet Mel Gibson, and they also meet their mother, Karen, who's an alcoholic drug addict, played by Lindsay Lohan. The age difference between Jack and Mel Gibson and Lindsay Lohan is never acknowledged. And Lindsay Lohan is also remarried to a man named Ron, who's a nudist, played by James Franco. And a soon-to-be stepmother, who's set to marry Mel Gibson's character, is played by Millie Bobby Brown. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the whole entire movie is just these absurd characters interacting with each other at this wedding. You know, R. Kelly, of course, is falling in love with Millie Bobby Brown, and he wants her to leave Mel Gibson for him. So he's spending the whole entire movie trying to woo Millie Bobby Brown. James Franco's Ron falls in love with Jill. 
and 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 uh, Jack sees this as an opportunity to get another big name client. You know, this nudist. He's kind of a rock star. He's kind of cool. So Jack decides to dress up like Jill and hook up with James Franco's run. All kinds of crazy antics. And at the end, our final scene, R. Kelly takes the stage, a performance of Michael Jackson's Black and White. He brings out his best friend, Takashi 69 Final <laughs> scene, really Bobby Brown and all these women dance on stage to R. Kelly's performance of a Michael Jackson song. The end. I did not expect that type of pitch for Jack and Jill that long. That um, that was longer but funnier than, than I really expected. I, I appreciated it. Um, I'm just going to say this right now. Tristan fucking nailed his rule. I mean, I don't know how you can get more problematic than everything he said. And everyone he said kind of fit in. I don't think anyone's actually like pitching uh, R. Kelly in a movie, but... Um, Millie Bobby Brown, like being friends with Drake and stuff like that, and Drake like uh, being a being a pedophile. Like I, I feel like all that kind of uh, comes into play with his. So, uh, interesting. Bobby started doing his, and as soon as he said Chris Rock top five, I was like, "There's no fucking way Tristan wins." And then Tristan <laughs> made me laugh the entire pitch. So this is very interesting. I'm uh, I I don't know. Duke it out. I, Tell me, tell me what I don't know about the other person's movie. I guess because yeah. I, honestly, I think I would, I would, uh, I wouldn't see Tristan's because it's insane. <laughs> but pitch wise, I'm interested in both pitches. You both nailed the role. So here's the thing: it's really tough to fight a problematic movie, and I think you're gonna. So, yeah. but my, I'm what I'm gonna do is basically compare it to without telling you what I did with my problematic movie. Um, I think the trick to that is making it problematic, but making it something people, at least a certain demographic of people would actually go out to see that would cause a big controversy. No one is going to have any interest in seeing this movie at all in theaters. Um, you might have some like couple curious people like, what is this thing? But um, like there, there's this movie is so ridiculous and yes, it's funny. You nailed problematic, but you it's a movie that no one will ever see it might be a controversy for a minute but because it's so terrible it's not going to cause as big of a stink as if you were trying to do like maybe a serious movie or do like um you know they were going for something oscar worthy and made it super problematic this movie is already bad people didn't go see jack and jill in the first place um, I feel like one of the things with making it problematic is you want some big controversy to come out of it, maybe. And I don't. I think it's too over the top, and no one would go see it. I just think Chris Rock is going to entertain you. This can be a movie that people can just throw on at just about any time and get entertainment out of any part of the movie because you're seeing Chris Rock's comedy throughout the entire thing. And then, then top five is fantastic if you have that style of humor and he can get ridiculous in moments like, like he did in top five. I think that is uh, just a, it's a movie that will live on much longer than yours. Well, for one, I'll say the fact that nobody would see this movie is problematic. I think that's part of what makes it a problematic movie is that you see this movie that you can't believe a studio ever would make this. And you think, Oh my God, who made this? Why would anyone see this in the bomb? So completely, 
Like every year, there's always like one movie or so where you see it on the res, you see it like the bottom of the box office list every year, and you think, my God, how is this possibly ever made? And that's where this Jack and Jill movie is going to be. And for years, I think, one, it's a lazy rule pick because it's already a movie that has multi one actor playing multiple roles. So I think you lose points for that. And I love Chris Rock. He's hilarious. But I also don't think he has the range to pull off like a crazy amount of different characters. He's really funny when he plays his his what he's known for and he can be serious when he wants to but i don't think he can be serious and funny and whimsical and this and this and this and i think when you're playing tons of roles in a big cast of a movie you generally need more range than chris rock has and i think chris rock is not the pick to do a ton and ton of different characters i mean chris rock has done a lot of different types of roles he can be his comedic self and serious but the, the whole point of this movie is i mean the premise is ridiculous you're just seeing chris rock in like some weird wig and then also as his kids, that's already going to be funny enough. It's not like he has to, like, you, his, Chris Rock's kids can be little Chris Rocks. That would be hilarious. That would be really funny. Like, they can just be his same personality because, you know, that, the, the, the visual itself is already funny. Um, but, yeah, Johnny, if, can you guys still hear us with, uh, like, are you, okay. So I don't know how much more I can fight it because I wouldn't go see Tristan's. No one would go see Tristan's, but that's kind of the point. Um, mine, I do think is, I think is an actual realistic movie that people would like and enjoy and go out to see. Um, he may have, he may have nailed the rule, um, but I think it made a movie that's gonna, it's not going to make an impact and it's just going to be this terrible, terrible movie that gets forgotten about. People remember Jack and Jill even now, and it was absolutely terrible. You know, I think bad movies live on way longer than like okay comedies with like a really good co comedian in the center of them. Like, and I also think Chris Rock playing every role would get boring with the, in the first like 20, 30 minutes. Like by the time you get to the middle of the movie, you'd be like, all right, I bet the next character is Chris Rock, and then he is. And I mean, he plays like I said, it's all it's like it's all the same character. And you like you said, all oh, the kids are little Chris Rocks, and I bet the old people are old Chris Rocks, and I bet the adults or adult Chris Rocks, and I would get very tired of seeing nothing, nothing but Chris Rock for this whole yeah. entire movie. I don't know who you'd yeah. play off. He has more range than you give him credit for. I've seen him do some different things, but, uh, you know, it's a comedy. It's supposed to be ridiculous. It has this crazy thing, and you made, you took a ridiculous movie and just kind of made it ridiculous again, uh, but just problematic. Um, but, yeah. I don't really have too much to say as far as fighting. Yeah, these. I, I, I think I have my uh, my rolling down here. First of all, Jack and Jill is problematic in its in itself because of how bad it is. So uh, it doesn't need to be like super. Uh, oh, let's throw in a bunch of like uh, pedophiles and sexists and molesters into it to be problematic. It can be problematic just because it exists, and that's what the already Jack and Jill does. Um, but Tristan, I mean, up that to the thousandth degree. So, like, the rule is not let's make it problematic in a way that people would see it. It's let's make it as problematic as possible. Tristan made it as problematic as possible. Um, I, I wouldn't say that you know, even including like including people too that are still working now, like including R. Kelly, like, yeah, he's not getting a movie. Brian Singer, I don't ever see him getting a movie again, but like Scarlett Johansson is still in movies and she's just like, Oh, I am 
uh, just going to take over every Asian role and including, um, you know, Millie Bobby Brown and the uh, R. Kelly thing is funny because, yeah, Millie Bobby Brown, I don't know, that girl needs to be like, yo, I'm fucking like 15, like let's chill for a bit. Drake, stop hanging out with me. So her hanging out with R. Kelly made sense to his to his pitch. And Woody Allen is still getting jobs, even though that dude should have been put in jail like probably 20 years ago. So like whatever is going on with that. Like I understand his thing. Like it's kind of a combo of people who are super problematic and people are still getting jobs. I, I think it could have gone one way or the other. Um, Bobby top five is in my top five comedies ever made. Um, I, I love top five. That's a, that's a fantastic movie. Chris Rock is amazing. And I think he can do multiple characters. This was, this so far has been the toughest decision um of the podcast um and man it i know it's tough to fight what movie is problematic bobby fought more so on no one's gonna go see it but like i don't know you don't you don't need to go see it but i did like his point of a problematic movie is more so like green book and like crash because those are movies that Hollywood would make and think they are doing good and they're problematic for anyone who has a brain. And Tristan's movie was, I'm going to make it as problematic as possible, but like everyone knows there's problems with it. Like they're that, that actually would never get made. So, so Bobby, because of, because of your points of not because no one would see it, but because it would never get made. I, I agree with Bobby on, on his, and I'm going to go uh, three to Bobby. I, I choose him. But we have to just uh, change one thing. I do have some live comments we're going to go with. Um, I did make my decision because I didn't want anything else to, to uh, you know, uh, dis- disrupt me from that. But let's get some live comments. Uh, Cole McNeely, in all seriousness, the Chris Rock idea of playing all characters is great. I agree. Chris Rock is very versatile and can do all those roles. Clint McNeely also says, here's your chance uh, to bring in R. Kelly. Won me over. <laughs> I think that those were reverse. But Mike, try this on for size. Jack and Jill go up the hill. At the top is Tommy Gunn <laughs> Simba. So, all right. Interesting. All right. Give us one sec. We got to fix our, our, uh, our headphones because Angie's uh, computer died on us. Uh, and then uh, we will yeah. we'll get things started again. Tristan, I got to say that pitch made me laugh the hardest of any pitch I've heard on this show before. That was awesome. You know, I, when you want to go all in, you got to go all in. I had to find a way to fight it, but that was uh, that was hilarious. So I, I, I give I I give you the point on that one for personally. Jack and Jill family get-togethers. So Cole again, problematic. Jack and Jill family get-together results in intense, ill-informed political conversations the entire time. You know what? That's just real life, Cole. Yeah, that just happens. That's just called like Thanksgiving. Is it a documentary? Yeah. Um, do we have any audio from our, our judge here or not yet? It doesn't look like it. Um, yeah. So Top Five is an awesome movie, though. I, I would definitely love to see Chris Rock play like a lot of different roles. I think that would give him a chance yeah. to have range, too. So. Yeah. No, that was a tough one. I wrote that in two seconds, but I just love Top Five, and I love Chris Rock, so I just went with that. Um, do you know uh, – you can remind – you can tell Johnny once he can hear, but um, what movie are you going for next? I'm not quite sure yet. I'm thinking To Kill a Mockingbird, though. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> that would be a, a good um, follow-up. Jack and Jill. From Jack and Jill to, you know, a classic. Great transition. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be all right with that. It's tough to pick some of these. I, I always want to save some of my favorite ones for later on, but I have like two. I have like one in my back pocket I love and one I really like. So we'll see. can tell we're all Superman fans because the first pitch was like 20 minutes each. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why I, I, I wanted to get it out of the way because I just kind of was thinking about it. And I even left off a couple of like things, but I was like, I don't want to go too long. Like <laughs> I, I, I have a whole movie in my head on that. So. Um, all right. So Bobby, you won that round. Where are we going next, Tristan? We're we going next to the Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, I'm very interested. This is one of my favorite movies and books of all time. And who's going first? Uh, I'm debating. This is Atticus Finch, a lawyer in the Depression era South, defends a black man against an undeserved rape charge and his children against prejudice. Uh, it stars Gregory Peck, John Megna, and Frank Overton. It's directed by John Mulgan and has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. Uh, who'd you say was going first? I couldn't hear you. You can go first. Me? All right. So this is an interesting follow-up to the last round. Um, my director for my movie is Mel Gibson. Uh, the, co- the co-writer on this screenplay is Roman Polanski. Um, and as you can tell by those two, I am making this movie as problematic as possible in a movie with the subject matter that can be very touchy. Um, and I want to make your, Johnny, you, you got that, right? You're off the screen a little bit. Okay. All right. So my Atticus Finch is going to be played by Mel Gibson. Um, <laughs> my Tom Robinson, who is the man on trial, is going to be played by Terry Crews, who has a lot of controversies going on right now. Um, the adult scout who is doing the voiceover and narration is going to be Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, my <laughs> my Cal- Calpurnia the housekeeper is going to be Scarlett Johansson in blackface. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ooh, how are you taking a, a step up? My <laughs> Boo Radley. Face turned so red. Johnny's laugh broke me. But my Boo Radley is going to be played by Louis C.K. Yeah, right. Um, oh, and man. then my my non problematic characters are the kids because there's really nothing you can do with them. I have McKenna Grace as Scout from Gifted and Hunting of Hill House, and I my Jen Brown dating R. Kelly. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and then the, her brother Jem is going to be Cameron King uh, from Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and His Dark Materials, the show. But yeah, you got my problematic stuff. But so the problem with this movie is people are actually going to see this and think it's amazing, like Green Book there's going to be a certain side of people because this is going to be essentially white savior to the max. Um, So uh, it paints all the black men in the movie as very dumb and uneducated and grateful to Mel Gibson's Atticus Finch, who is the smartest man uh, in the town. And he essentially single-handedly ends racism in that town, but it tells the same story. It tells the To Kill a Mockingbird story with really good acting and great direction by Mel Gibson but it's, you know, you have the Jesus imagery that he shows in most of his movies. Um, 
you get, uh, yeah, I mean, really the cast and the story they're telling, it really doesn't get more problematic than that because they're going to people that think this is like the best movie ever made. All right. Um, I, yeah, more so than Tristan's uh, uh, problematic movie, I think this one could actually get made. So Tristan, you got a lot to uh, live up to. So what are you, what are you pitching for me? All right. Well, mine is definitely not as problematic. <laughs> mine is written and directed by Barry Jenkins, starring Michael B. Jordan as Tim Robinson, a black man who's in this version on the prosecution, who is accusing a police officer of assault in a high-profile legal battle after video evidence services of the officer assaulting Robinson during an, uh, during an arrest. And said officer is played by Charlie Sheen. In a in a return to drama form, he hasn't been in stuff in a really long time. I think he's set for sort of like a comeback, and I think this is a chance to show off his dramatic traps. So Tim Tom Robinson acquires a prosecuting attorney, played by Robin Wright, named Angelica Finch. She takes up the case and vows to help defend Tom Robinson in this in this intense battle ahead of him. So the plot follows a sort of similar trajectory to the original, where it is this character-driven law drama, but a lot of it is from Robinson's perspective to avoid this white savior storyline that seemed to come up in the previous pitch. And I think you get Robinson as the protagonist. You see how this is affecting his life. You see he has a young son who he wants to inspire to do good things like this, but he's also nervous because he knows he's endangering this kid because he's making him and his family the center of media attention and the center of anger from a lot of angry white people who are insisting that he's a criminal and that the cop's a hero and that he should not be following through on this case. It brings out these very timely themes that I think were important in the original. It comments on class. The book and the movie both comment on class and gender and racial divide and the fragility of the law is based on like human perception versus actual objective law. And I think you can bring that in here. You have an element of Black Lives Matter activism around this case. You could have protesters outside the courthouse, outside the houses. And I think a powerful final image could be ultimately that Robinson does lose this case. And it shows like the original did that the law is can be corrupted by people. And like we see now, police get away with a lot of things that probably shouldn't get away with. And it inspires a lot of reaction people. And I think the final image of Robin Wright returning home after once seeing a huge crowd of media outside of her door, coming back to an empty lawn and realizing the public interest has entirely moved on. Wow. That's my pitch. Wow. We got uh, two very different things here because Bobby went as problematic as possible and Tristan went, we're going to go with current issues and we're going to make it relevant um, and make the story relevant. That's, that's tough. Uh, Tristan, what, what was your, what was your rule in use? My rule is Charlie Sheen. I brought him in as the cop doing a dramatic role as a comeback for his long dying Hollywood career. Is that one of our rules? Yeah, one is you must include Charlie Sheen. Oh, Charlie Sheen. I was thinking, okay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yep. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Interesting. Um, my one question to Tristan is Is Charlie Sheen capable of playing a dramatic role? No. I think he is. He's been through a lot in his life recently. I think he could hone that into a dramatic performance. And I think most actors are capable of pulling something off. And I think Charlie Sheen has that crazy edge that I think he could get into that darkness the same way Jim Carrey does, where he's 
normally really ridiculous and crazy, but once in a while he pulls out this drama and you're like, oh man, there it is. Like that's the actor underneath there. I think you can see that in Charlie Sheen. Okay. And then, and then my question for Bobby is, um, I get like, you made the argument that your movie would actually be made. I know you made more relevant people that are still getting work. Like, you know, um, Scarlett Johansson and, uh, Roman Polanski and, and, and Mel Gibson, but is, I mean, throwing Louis CK into this, I don't, I think it might ruin your point. Why, why throw, um, why would your movie be known as like Oscar worthy level if Louis CK was involved? Well, because, um, Louis CK actually has a really big following again right now, somehow, like, Mm -hmm. He's actually getting a lot of work. He's touring. He's selling out clubs. Um, and him as Boo Radley without the problematic stuff is actually good casting, in my opinion, because Louis C.K. is he's a talented actor. Um, and Boo Radley is, you know, it's it's not like he's the entire movie. He's the neighbor. He's, he's kind of crazy. You don't really know what's going on with him. And then he has the big moment at the end where he saves them. Um, so I think he could actually pull off the role uh, and – yeah, he is on his comeback right now. Like he, he's touring, he's getting millions of views on YouTube videos. Uh, yeah, I think he fits right in with the rest of the problematic cast. That in this would be like oh, big comeback role for Louis C.K. Okay, all right, makes sense. Uh, yeah, that was pretty much the answer I was hoping for for from you. So this is tough. I am split down the middle. Um, do you, do you have any uh, thoughts on on these movies? I think I moved around a lot, so I never had to read or watch To Kill a Mockingbird, which now I feel like I should, but I did not know what it was about until today. What I like about the podcast is that there is the opportunity for one pitch to kind of go along and give me the idea of like what the movie, stay true to the movie, but I also like the reimagined, more relevant tale as well. Mm -hmm. I couldn't couldn't be a judge. This is a hard one. I, I enjoyed them both. All right, so fight it out, fight it out for a little bit. I, I may be leaning towards one, um, but I'm interested to see what you two have to say about the others. Yeah. So, so your big attack on my movie was that it wouldn't get made, and your big defense on yours is that it would get made. But I don't think any movie would ever get made in 2020 where Charles Johansson wears blackface. I think well, that, that one thing completely throws yeah, out yeah. your whole, oh, it's going to get made. It's totally going to get made. It's not going to get made. No one would ever put Charles Johansson in blackface now. That's the one thing that cannot happen. And I also think... The rule is as problematic as possible, not kind of sort of problematic. And I think yours is like kind of problematic. It brings in some kind of problematic people, but it's not like, I mean, of course the blackface is problematic to the, to the 10th degree, but that's the only part that really goes as problematic as possible. Everything else is like, well, it's kind of problematic, but I don't know. It could still get made. It still, still could be seen. Like that's not as problematic as possible. That's just sort of problematic. I I don't think that's a great argument personally, because, um, especially the subject matter of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think this is just about as problematic as you can get. Um, especially like one, uh, yeah, Scarlett Johansson, the being the blackface, I thought about that, like that is like the one big ridiculous thing in my movie. But the thing is Mel Gibson would do that. And he somehow still has a lot of power and is able to direct movies. And if he really wanted to do it and she did, I feel like they could actually try it. And even if they, um, like, you know, because their argument could be of like, oh, well, Robert Downey Jr. did it, even though that was a complete parody. But look, really, even if she was not in blackface, that would still be problematic. But the blackface is just, look, 
we have one thing like that's that's a nitpick on mine and then the big thing on yours really is that um charlie sheen is just he's not a good actor anymore i think you're facing one of the problems that i ran into in my jaws pitch before uh where i put in dana carvey in a serious movie you have barry jenkins doing that that's who i that's like he does these serious dramatic and like you said relevant movies and takes but charlie sheen is going to take you out of the movie because he is too out there right now he um he can't i don't think he's he has the sense to pull that off right now um and like you know yours is a retelling it does it gets the dramatic moments it's it's a retelling of sickle and mockingbird it's it was a good movie it would be a solid movie but i think it would be forgotten because the original is such a classic when you have a, a remake that is so problematic like this but would still get attention and might even like be up for acting nominations and thing like things like that. It it possibly, or at least like people would think so, um, that it should. Uh, I feel like it's going to live on in like this is one of the biggest travesties in movie history, and that's kind of what I'm going for because they're taking such a serious subject matter, uh, such a classic movie, and remaking it as problematic as you possibly can. Okay, I I got my my decision. Um, Andrea, anything to add? Do you uh, you have any other thoughts after they're hearing their arguments? From what I've seen of Charlie Sheen, I, I do kind of feel like he could, they could put him on a stand and he could be just as terrible as I'd expect. I feel like it might be a curveball, a weird advantage. I kind of, I, the Charlie Sheen role is different and I enjoy it. It gives me some good things to think about. Okay. So, so here's my, here's my thing with the movies is that Tristan's made his relevant with the times. Um, I, I think he updated the story of To Kill a Mockingbird to, today uh very well now i don't know how well charlie sheen fits into that because he definitely cannot act anymore so playing such a big role is a problem um maybe if he was playing the judge or something that he could only have a few lines i think maybe would have been stronger um but for bobby's while it was funny, you know, the problematic as possible, it is a tough rule to do. I, I understand that. Um, I think with the problematic rule, you have to go one of two ways. You have to go, I'm going to go all out, balls out, make it as problematic as possible. It would never get made, obviously. Or you have to go, this movie could actually get made and is very problematic since it can get made. And Bobby's almost hit that, except he went Scarlett Johansson and blackface, which everything else in his movie, I could see Hollywood doing. I could see Mel Gibson being, you know, nominated for best director for, but as soon as you put Scarlett Johansson and blackface, that movie is not getting made even in you know in, in today's Hollywood with Mel Gibson with all the other people you have that movie's not getting made so I, I think um, Bobby's movie for that point for going in one direction but having something not be relevant to the rest of his movie um, I, I think Tristan wins that point because I, I like the uh, the the uh, social commentary that his movie brings even though Charlie Sheen might not have a great performance his movie. I could see being made Bobby's in no universe uh, would ever get made. So, so I'm going to go with Tristan on that one. So we're going to tie it up to uh, three to three. All right. That is a much better movie. And it is really hard to pitch a problematic <laughs> movie. 
yeah. <laughs> and have I it win, have, a, to win a point. Live comments. Uh, so uh, after making the ruling, let's go see what those are. Jill, you're still there. Classic Bobby being problematic. <laughs> 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 yeah, my, yeah, Michael. Problematic one. I'd say Charlie's capable of serious role for sure. It says Michael. Yeah, Charlie Day is great. Charlie Day is who I thought. <laughs> Bradley Smith. Surprised Matt Damon hasn't been thrown into any problematic roles. He has been able to avoid all, all that somehow. Um, yeah, except uh, oh, he meant Mark Wahlberg. Uh, except Matt That's Damon very was in a problematic role in. Uh, the Great Wall. Oh well, uh, that was that, but is, that was, it, but that that was actually not as much as you thought because that was a Chinese movie that they wanted an American actor in. They wanted him. It, it yeah. is problematic. Can't. Yeah, yeah. Marky Mark, you're damn right. He punched an Asian person in the face. Yeah, I know. Your percent chance. <laughs> yeah. Joe wears blackface in 2020. Yeah, that's, that's what, what all the memes are. That's what, I think that's it's what, But that's what that's what Bobby uh, lost at if if Scarjo was just in it. Maybe playing an Asian character, you know, that's acceptable. She, that. That. she doesn't give a fuck about playing Asians, but she, she, she you know, what, you know what the funny that. part about that is that that lost me the point. I didn't write that down. I was just like, I'm just going to make her blackface as I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby's improv is so funny. Wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I was just like, you know what? That makes it that more problematic. Improvising. Uh, so. Uh, I've seen. Some I just had her being the maid and just being Calpurnia and being white. <laughs> you should have had her playing an Asian character, and I was yeah. like, "What? That <laughs> that would happen because she does that." But yeah, oh, you had her in blackface, and that that's what kind of pushed you over the edge. So, so uh, Bobby, what what are we doing next? Uh, we only got what three movies left. We're almost at two hours, so we got to make these next three uh, faster than the than the previous. To be completely upfront with you, two of my pitches are relatively long. One of them is pretty long. So uh, I'm going to get the longer if, one. If you give me a long pitch, I'm not going to remember it. Yeah, it is. It's one of those ones that you have to change the movie a decent amount. But um, I'll go with a. You know what? I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to stay fast and the furious, and I'm going to have Tristan go, for, go first. There you go. Okay. Keep me interested, Tristan. I will give you a buzzer if I lose interest. <laughs> That's going to be our new thing because we got to get this shit done in like probably 30 minutes and we have three movies left. Are you good to go? Yeah, let's go. All right, Fast and Furious, directed by Miguel Sapochnik, who made the amazing, awesome action episodes in Game of Thrones until the last season when the director or the showrunners made it awful. And in this version of Fast and Furious, it's all the Middle East cast or the Middle Earth cast. It's about a varied group of people who are outlaws or politicians who are in a street tournament to win the prize of a nuclear bomb. Brian O'Connor is an FBI agent played by Orlando Bloom. He's tasked with racing undercover to get the weapon out of the terrorist's hands. Dominic Toretto is an ex-convict and a well-known racer. He's played by Viggo Mortensen in this gritty sort of anti-hero role. And he wants to win the race so he can sell a bomb and start a new life with his family away from his ex-convict status. Mia Toretto is his sister. Sister Adam is played by Liv Tyler. She tries to play both sides between Brian and Dom to be always on the winning side. Hugo Weaving plays Leon, who's a villain who recruits a, he's a recruit of a terror group who's tasked with racing the bomb so he can win the nuclear bomb and prove his value as a terrorist. And John Noble plays Vesk, an outlaw who is running the race, and he's the guy who 
one way or another recovered a nuclear bomb. And what can you say about the plot of Fast and Furious? You know, they race. Hugo Weaving is a bad guy. He's trying to cheat. He's trying to win. Dom and Brian are buttonheads for the first act. But after the first race, they begin to work together. They realize the threat of this nuclear bomb. And Dom agrees to work with Brian as long as Brian can get him out of this life and get him a new, fa- a new life afterwards. The, f- the final battle is a big race. Dom, Brian, and Mia are all driving together in this big budget crazy Fast and Furious chase against Leon. They recover the bomb, and the FBI is not going to grant Dom a deal, but Brian lets him go and says, I hope you can drive again, brother. And that's my pitch. All right. Bobby, it's your yours. All right. So my movie, uh, I'm just going to say it up front, this movie must include Harley Quinn. So this is going to be set in the DC universe telling the story of Fast and the Furious. Also the story of Point Break because they are the same movie. A bad Um, remake of Point Break. Yeah. So I'm going to keep at least the character's name of Brian O'Connor. He's going to be from the Gotham PD played by Logan Lerman. Um, He has that innocence that he brought to like Fury, um, perks of being a wallflower. He can be the guy seeing and observing this group. Um, so I'm completely changing the clans of who he's going to see because obviously it's not going to be Dominic Toretto. Um, it's going to be a relatively new villain in the DC universe named Gearhead, um, who's going to be played by Oscar Isaac. Um, my Harley Quinn is going to be Amanda Seyfried. Seyfried. Uh, my Joker is going to be Lakeith Stanfield. Stanfield. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I just kind of filled out the rest of like random members of the crew. So I have Haley Steinfeld. Um, I have Jamie Bell. Um, I have Tony Revolori, who's in Dope and the Spider-Man movies. Um, he's flashing those ones. And then I have Aubrey Plaza thrown in there for kind of the comedic, dry sense of humor role. It's a pander. Uh, I actually wrote that before you were the judge, but uh, yeah. So, all right. So because it's in DC, I have a little bit of a longer one written out, but uh so it's the plot of Fast and Furious where you have a young Gotham PD officer that goes undercover um, after banks have repeatedly been robbed. It is suspected that the culprit is a group of street racers led by Nathaniel Finch, a.k.a. Gearhead. He is new on the scene and is unknown whether he is a good or bad guy at this point. They are rivals of the Joker gang and, have re- and they have repeated run-ins. Uh, this is where Harley Quinn comes in, where as revenge for their breakup, Harley go- joins the Gearhead j- gang. Um, there's a lot of street racing since that is how Gearhead initiates his members. Um, he is very charismatic and seems like he is, has good intentions and just wants to take out the Joker. Uh, the only time Batman is referenced is he's like in the shadows when there's run-ins with the Joker's gang causes them to say, yeah, like it's the bat and it breaks up the confrontation. Um, and then, so throughout the time undercover, he bonds with Gearhead and learns of his backstory where Batman was too late to save him from the Joker gang and he lost his limbs in an explosion. They were replaced with cybernetic replacements, um, and he said his goal is to try to get rid of the evil gangs of Gotham and spread wealth to the poor, kind of Robin Hood style. Um, so once it's revealed that the gang is responsible for the bank robberies, and he wants, but then he's going to try to spread that wealth, uh, Brian has second thoughts about bringing him in. He says he'll give him a head start, like he, like he does to Dom in the original, and lets him get away. So there's my pitch of Fast and Furious in the DC Universe. All right. Um, I'm going to be honest. I, I really like Bobby's pitch. Um, I like his introduction of Gearhead. I think his fits into the uh, Harley Quinn thing. Um, I, I don't really need you two to duke it out too much. I need Tristan to just 
if you give me a good answer on this, this could make or break your pitch. Why include the whole nuclear bomb thing into into the Fast and Furious movie? Because I think Fast and Furious is supposed to be kind of over the top and kind of ridiculous. So I think that nuclear bomb is a good way to inspire all these different kinds of people. You know, why would the FBI want to be involved in the street races? It's why would the big scale terrorists want to be involved in the street race? I think a nuclear bomb gives them a really high stakes goal for all these people who want to go for it. Okay. All right. Um, real quick, Bobby, do you have anything to, to add uh, to take down or to defend on yours? I mean, really, it's just that um, Fast and Furious, you're, you kind of just remade Fast and Furious, but with a serious tone, and I feel a more serious tone. You do have the ridiculousness, but I just feel like that's just a boring movie. It's just not as fun. Mine makes sense for the world I created um, and is a more fun movie where you delve into the underworld of Gotham. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think um, real quick, because this one, this was an easy one. You guys don't need to fight it out because we'd just be wasting time. Tristan lost me at the nuclear bomb thing. I, I, I think that that might fit into the nowadays uh, Fast and Furious world if you're just making a sequel to it, but it doesn't make any sense to do a, uh, a remake of the original one, which was basically just a point break remake uh, with like street racing. Um and, and include that that type of stuff. So, you, do you have anything to add? Have you have you seen Fast and Furious? I saw the first one. Okay, that's what this one is. I enjoyed your point that you made about the nuclear bomb connection because at first, as a as a viewer, I was totally about it. I was like, okay, that makes sense. Like the movies are ridiculous. Every time I hear about it, it's like, yeah. why? But okay, I don't know. That's yeah, I, I just think the nuclear bomb thing maybe makes sense as sequels to this movie franchise we've talked about how crazy it should get i pitched dinosaurs uh driving cars that's where these movies should go nowadays but if you're rebooting the franchise you don't need to get as crazy as tristan did with nuclear bombs and uh i think bobby put some good research in putting some good actors in and uh making it connected to like uh modern dc villains like uh Gearhead, so so I, I I like Bobby's pitch, so I'm going to give him that point. So Bobby takes the lead for three, and uh, and uh, honestly, I'm going to uh, go to the bathroom real quick. So you two, three, all all <laughs> to each other real quick. Just uh, vamp. I don't know. Yeah. Not gonna lie, a DC racing movie sounds pretty cool. You know, everyone wants to get that Suicide Squad style like villains of DC movie, and I think that's an interesting way to bring it about. <laughs> well, honestly, that was because I lost. I, I was pissed. I lost my last time I pitched a DC racing movie, which was Rat Race, um, which I pitched before as a DC thing featuring Bane. Um, and uh, you know what? Yeah, let's take some live comments, Joe. Uh, we got some coming in. Fast and Furious starring OJ. Yeah, that would be making it as problematic as possible. <laughs> Freaking flying down that highway. Yeah, yeah, that would be something. That could be in the Bronco, though. Starring Caitlyn Jenner, the villains, you ask. Pedestrians. Yeah, that would... Uh, that oh, would, boy. We just have, oh, God, ha, 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 I don't know which one that was for. I think that was a reaction to the previous comments. I think Cole's been on it with the comments. Yeah, and and surprisingly, those ones did not have to do with Rocky Five. I thought we were going to have to go into this long debate on why Rocky was poor and didn't have a uh, a deal with like Nike at that point. But you know what? That's true. Uh, would Rocky win a race in Fast and Furious? Uh, Rocky racing would be pretty interesting, but I don't really know how much of a driver he is. He kind of likes to run down the streets. 
have a uh, a deal. With Shout out, Nate. Cool. Nate. There's there's Michael. There's a you got a little cameo of my and Johnny's younger brother. I didn't really hear what he said. He said something you're cool, but maybe he said shout out to Cole. Shout out to Cole. Okay. It's the benefits of living yeah. with two Mitchells. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've had a full-on conversation in our live chat. So uh, we're just going to show some of the highlights of that going on. Um, I'd be a big fan of Rocky as Vin Diesel. I think he they both have that sort of like big man chops that are almost ridiculous, you know? <laughs> I see that. That's that's pretty good. If you were actually to try to like recast it as the same movie, I, I would put Sly in there and take that. So what what's your favorite pitch so far, Angelica? Um, I it's hard to say. I think I would go off of for movies for me, I was really into both of the Exorcist pitches because I love horror movies, but I also watch really bad horror movies for fun. Mm -hmm. So I liked hearing the arguments and I liked the battling of it out. It's definitely interesting being on this side instead of just viewing and commenting. I thought commenting was hard, but giving mm -hmm. feedback's a little bit difficult, but I like the way that you guys really spell it out for like the average person that'll be listening, watching, or participating. I'm happy to hear that because it, it's tough to, especially with all of us kind of know movies pretty well, to not just uh, cater to that. So I'm glad we're filling out pretty well. And the the actors that a lot, a lot of the actors that were chosen, at first I was like, uh, who? But then as it kind of went on or as they connected, it made a lot of sense. So the descriptions that everyone gives are great. Yeah, that that yeah. shirt. Very good. All right. Okay. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, P. Um, so, do we have uh, what's our next movie, Tristan? Yeah, Tristan. let's go with uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This one is my shortest pitch because I think it's I wrote. Right? It. Honey, yeah. Cool. Quickly. Are you going first or second, Tristan? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. All right, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, I, it got a seventy-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but like a 50% by users, uh, so very split on that one. Uh, the scientist father of a teenage girl and a boy accidentally shrinks his his and two other neighborhood teens to the size of insects. Now the teens must fight uh, diminutive dangers as the father searches for them. Uh, it stars Rick Moranis and a bunch of people that aren't famous anymore, um, and it's directed by Joe Johnston. Um, it... Uh, was one of my favorite movies as a kid, Angelica and I kind of recently watched it, and honestly, it doesn't hold up too well. It was uh, it was kind of uh, not great. So uh, I'm interested to see what you guys uh, do to it to uh, keep me more interested. Yeah, that's disappointing to hear. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I remember loving it. It was, it was a good first watch. It was not. It was on Disney Plus, and it, it wasn't as interesting as I as I remembered as a child. But uh, that that makes sense as to why the uh, critic score and the user scores are different on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. So let's go. What do you got? All right, mine's a famed Candyman. Charlie decides he's closing the chocolate factory that he inherited as a child, but he's going to host one last contest inspired by when he inherited the factory originally. And one of the families that goes along is the Zelinsky family, led by an aspiring inventor, uh, played by Wayne. He's, he's played by Charlie Day and his two children, Amy and Nick. 
and they're one of the lucky few to win. And Wayne in the original is obsessed with inventions and technology, so I think he'd love to go see Wonka's factory. And as they're going on this tour, he's tinkering with Wonka's equipment. He's obsessed with looking on the inside, seeing how it works. And they go to this first room where Charlie presents the gummy growers, which are these gummy candies that let people grow 10 times their size so they can eat 10 times the candy before they get full. But he confesses that he, knew he, was, never able, he was never able to perfect the system. People kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until they popped. So Wayne's curiosity gets to him and he messes with the machine and prints out these new gummy growers that he swears are gonna work and has his kids take them and they're shrunk. He takes one too and they keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and they realize if they don't fix this soon, they're gonna shrink and shrink and shrink until they stop existing. So they must go room to room and really walk a chocolate factory collecting the different parts that uh, Wayne will need to fix the machine and get them back to the normal size. Uh, the family works together, trailing room to room, gathering tools and bonding. They're sort of this, this modern family that's not very connected, not very, don't get along very well, but in this course of this movie, they grow together and they come to relate to each other. And in the end, Zelensky's do fix the machine. However, the original problem still persists. They grow and they grow and they grow and they're not stopping growing until Charlie walks in, done with the tour, and sees what happened. And initially he's furious. He says, oh, you win nothing, this and this, sort of like in the first one where they initially very mad at them breaking the rules. But as he sees that they bonded together, as he sees his family was able to grow and become better people through this tour, he decides, you know what? I'm not going to close this factory. Wayne Zielinski, you're going to be my co-engineer at this factory. We're going to work together to build crazy contraptions and machines to make the best candy ever. And that's my pitch. Okay. okay. All right. Bobby, what do you got for me? All right. So like I said, like, like you said, Johnny, we, we grew up loving this movie. Um, I think it's a family movie that works in the time when it was created at the time it was a good kids movie. Um, and I want it, I want to keep it a family movie, but kind of get it to um, an audience to to kids that they can see themselves on screen a little better. So I'm going to use the cast of a sitcom. Um, and I'm using the cast from Blackish, um, which is much better than I thought it would be when I first saw the trailers. I didn't think it looked very good. And I watched some episodes in it. It's Great. A, it's a really, really, really good show. Really, really good. Um, my director is Jeff Fowler, who um, did Sonic the Hedgehog, which was way better than it had any right to be. Um, it was really sweet um, and really fun and just entertained throughout the movie. And that's what I want this to be. I want it to be a family fun movie where black kids can see themselves on screen. And and see our smart scientist as well and just kind of update it a little bit and get the humor that was it, the family type of humor that was in Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, so really it's Wayne Selinsky as Anthony Anderson. Uh, his wife is Tracy Ellis Ross. And then you have the kids. Um, you have uh, Marcel Martin, Marcus Scrib Scribner, Miles Brown, and Yara Shadi Shahidi. You have their kids. And then you have the neighbors that are um, on the right with them that get shrunk. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it, I didn't write a ton for this because if you just have the same premise and update the humor so that it works today, you have updated effects. So it looks a lot better. Um, and you have a cast that is as charismatic and fun as blackish. Um, I think you have a fun family movie that's just simple to the point And that is gonna live on and be a good, uh, be just a good family movie for kids watching, growing up, going on car rides and stuff like we did going to Florida. Cool. All right. Uh, what are your initial thoughts? Um, uh, so we watched the movie. I liked it. It was a good for a first time. If I saw it as a kid, it would have been great. I like Bobby's 
uh, rule and his casting of Black-ish. As a kid, I would have definitely liked to see something like that because there wasn't much. So that one, I, I was a big fan of that. That was a good one. Cool. Um, all right. Um, you know, I honestly, Tristan, I'm leaning towards Bobby. I, I do really like his pitch. I, I think I think Honey, I Shrink the Kids is very much of its time, and Bobby updated it. Um, with with an updated cast, an updated story, and uh, really good child actors, and Anthony Anderson's always funny, um, and the whole cast of Blackish is great. So for yours, um, I'm interested in seeing. Now, the other thing is I'm obsessed with anything Charlie Day does. I'm going to go see immediately. I love Charlie Day. But um, Tristan, is your movie going to be connected to, like, the Mike TV um, shrinking in Willy Wonka, or does yours not really have anything to do with that? Because it didn't seem to, but it, I feel like it should have. Well, mine is entirely, it's an entirely different candy that Charlie makes, because it takes place decades later when Charlie's old and Charlie's grown up. I would think that he'd want to make new candy, and they wouldn't just repeat the same stuff from the first one. Okay. All right. Uh, you two duke it out. Duke it out for a little bit. Um, uh, again, we're at uh, two hours and sixteen minutes. I, I I think you two could keep this a little short, and I'll see what uh, where, where where we go. Well, on the yeah. defense of mine, I think sure. it paints some pretty ridiculous, fun images. We know Charlie Chocolate Factory so well. We know those rooms, but I think seeing them from this tiny perspective would make it really interesting point of view. Yeah, you, know, you get that edible candy room when they're walking through, and it's just blades of grass up to the top of their heads, but it's edible grass or they go and they meet the Oompa Loompas, but the Oompa Loompas, instead of being tinier, way taller than they are, and they're almost stepping on them. And I think it gives them a sort of cool inverse in the role of the Oompa Loompas. It's sort of problematic in the original where, oh, they're like these short people that Willy Wonka is sort of like enslaving. And I think making them now, instead of be short, be like these towering forces is kind of interesting. And I think it paints a lot of interesting scenes. I think seeing a, a, a building in its in rooms you know so well from a totally new perspective and also having that bonding experience that makes family movies so interesting is, is seeing yeah. these different members of a family come together and bond over this shared goal and I think that's something that the audience could really connect to and relate to and get something out of. Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean really it's uh, it, I think that changes just too much of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and it's just uh you're putting it in this Willy Wonka world. I don't really see how the connection really makes it like a modern retelling. Um, it doesn't connect like it should have connected using the shrink ray for the, the Mike TV. I think that would have been clever. Um, I, I really, it's just, I, it doesn't need to be that complicated. It's honey. I shrunk the kids. It's a fun family movie. You need a great cast. You need um, that kind of same premise and update. And that's kind of all you need. Um, it's just the, the connection to Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory does not add to the movie other than a few visuals. But as far as the story you're telling, um, I don't see why it has to be like, he's, he's going to be the engineer there with Charlie. No, I don't. I mean, it doesn't connect enough and it also doesn't make sense for honey. I shrunk the kids to me. Um, it, it's a family movie. It's, it's him and his family. And I feel like that's where it needs to stay. So yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think I have a decision on this, which um, will be interesting because we haven't had a lot of many of these uh, bigger victories, but uh, it's going to end up being 5-3 Bobby because I love his cast of Blackish in the movie and updating it to modern humor 
with a great cast who's capable of uh, making a, a good family movie. I like Bobby's tone. Again, Tristan, I think you could have gone the way of including the, I mean, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory literally has a shrink ray that Mike TV goes into and shrinks himself. You should have embraced that aspect, and I think you kept it too separate. Um, I think it would have been great if you were like, hey, I'm going to make Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but we're going to bring in, you know, the original Slinsky character to invent that technology Something along those lines, I think, would have been more interesting. And I, I don't think you went with the most interesting route you could have gone. So Bobby is going to win at five to three. But the next point is important because next time you guys play, if Bobby ends up winning six to three, he will have the important rule of um, being able to repeat a rule and uh, taking an advantage next time you guys uh, portray. So, so Bobby... Um, you you got your first win, but Tristan, what is your last? Uh, what's the last movie, and who goes first? Uh, the last one's Bill and Ted. Okay. And I'll go first with this one. Oh wait, let's go to some live comments. Joe says, "Yeah, I'm not the only loss that isn't five to four. Yeah, that's true, Joe. You don't know that. Me, uh, six to three. So we're gonna possibly have another one. Joe's getting too ahead of himself because it could easily be." Five to four if Tristan wins this rule. So Joe's getting too far ahead. And then Cole uh, McNeely says, Honey, I shrunk Tommy Gunn, poor acting, call him even more. Cole McNeil uh, and McNeely is too obsessed with uh, Tommy Gunn. That's my only thing on that. And then Bobby Mitchell, who's on the show, says, Angelica, Jen wants to give you props for judging. She forgot uh, her YouTube login. So I'm assuming that was Jen and Bobby's YouTube. And movie change up. Who I'm still not sure who is running that. Says I co-signed Bobby. I like the consulting judge having the every man slash woman opinion that Angelica and Jordan bring. Um, yeah, that's true. You're next, Jen. We're coming for you. Yeah, Jen, you're next. Yeah, I, she said she would never do it, but we'll see. I'll try to poke at her. Yeah, well, well, too bad. So Jen commented. That means she's on it. She's gonna be on next week. Or <laughs> not? But we'll see. Maybe one we'll day. See. All right, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure uh, came out in 1989, got an 81% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, two seemingly dumb teens set off on a quest to prepare the ultimate historical presentation with the help of a time machine. So it's Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Uh, it's directed by uh, Stephen Herrick. Um, the, the most recent one just came out today, like 40 years later. Uh, and, uh, and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm very excited to. It's basically two... Two surfer dude college kids bring back from a time machine a bunch of uh, famous historical figures like Abraham Lincoln and Genghis Khan to help them with their history project. So I'm interested to see what you two both did with this. So let's start. All right. Mine is a Bill and Ted Pixar movie. It's directed by Peter Doctor, the classic Pixar director. And it shows the story of two teen friends played by Aubrey Plaza and Aziz Ansari who work at a movie theater and dream of one day making a great movie of their own. But later that day, they're cleaning the theater and find a mysterious locked storeroom that never been in before. So they break in and find a big old box TV, like in the olden days, the VCR built in and a whole shelf full of old movies. So they pick out their favorite movie, which is star Wars and moments into the movie. They're sucked through the screen and pulled into the world of the movie. They're watching Luke and Obi-Wan on Tatooine. So they recruit Obi-Wan and Luke, bring them back into the house and they're sucked back into the TV 
and Bill and Ted realize this TV is a portal into the world of these movies, and we're going to recruit all our favorite characters, all of our favorite villains, all our favorite heroes, throughout all our favorite movies, and make the best movie of all time. So we get to see Bill and Ted go through Pixar movies, Disney movies. Disney has a huge catalog now, so it'd be cool to see a Star Wars animated in the style of Pixar, and it gives a chance for you to have that element of the original where they're trying to make the best history history essay ever, or they're trying to make the best song ever in the next one. And I think changing it up to being the best movie ever is a good way to keep that same premise, but not just make it time travel again, not just make it traveling to hell and heaven again. I think a lot of the flaws of this newest third one is that they kind of repeated a lot of the same stuff. And I think this goes through and it changes it up. It says, oh, they're making the best movie again. And I think it gives you a chance to have these two surfer nerd dorks Aziz Ansari and Abi Plaza had great chemistry on Parks and Rec, and I think that they would be able to play these characters really well. And I think having a nerd out about movies now instead of music, instead of history, would be really fun. And I think bringing all these Pixar characters into this fish-out-of-water comedy of seeing them in the real world, seeing them interacting with each other, seeing them in other Pixar worlds, I think that could be really fun too. And that's my pitch. Makes sense. All right. Bobby, let's hear yours. All right. I think you made a big mistake with uh, not keeping music as such a big part of it. And I'll get to that in my arguments. Um, and I'll show you how you can do that and still um, update the movie enough so it is not the same thing. Uh, so mine is going to be directed by Rick Famuyima, who uh, did Dope. Um, it's going to star as Bill. It's going to be Shamik Moore, who is from Dope and is also the voice of Miles Morales in the Spider-Man movie. Or Spider, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh, my Ted is RJ Seiler from e, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, as well as Power Rangers. Uh, he was the best part of that Power Rangers movie. Um, my Rufus, uh, who was George Carlin in the original, is going to be Denzel Washington. So he's going to come in, and they have to kind of really believe him about why they and be motivated to go back in time. And I can feel him giving a really stern and convincing speech to these kids. Um and then basically I didn't cast all the different people. They're still going to be going back in time to history, but one person I did cast in the one kind of not the one, but a, a funny scene is Socrates is going to be my rule. And he is going to be Charlie Sheen in a weird kind of crazy role where he's going to be, it's basically going to be shown that Socrates at the time was kind of a, he was kind of a bullshitter and just kind of was, but it, it ended up making sense later on when people read it, but he was just like saying crazy stuff and people believed him. Um, so it's just kind of a fun scene with Charlie Sheen, uh, cause I think that's how you use him well. Uh, so this movie is a fun coming of age time travel movie with educational elements. Um, instead of rock band, a rock band, it's a rap group called the stallions. Um, and it, so it just cha- it changes the music. Um, as they travel back through time, they see the oppression black people have suffered throughout. Well, they, um, that was not exactly taught in school. Um, it's still fun, but they definitely see this this stuff happen as they go back and see things. They see the founding of the United States. Um, so they see kind of the events of slavery as well. Um, some plot. Of, so the same plot of them going back through history and it's still fun, but it's just, those are the things that they're observing in a way for their history project as well. So that they can include that um, at the end. Uh, they pass history class, including receiving an A plus on their group speech project where they tell the stories left untold from the history books. Uh, so it's still fun. It's not like th- those are the serious things that I'm changing, but you still have the adventure. They're going to bring people along with them a lot, uh, with their time travel to learn from them. Um, and then they also just add to that. It's like, this is what we learned. And then also there's stuff that were outside of history that we want to want to tell people. 
All right. Okay. Um, all right. We are almost at two and a half hours, so we'll make this quick. But uh, um, I'll, I'll just let you two duke it out real quick, and then uh, and then we'll uh, we'll make our decision. Uh, yeah. So, um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is like synonymous with music uh, to me, um, and I just feel like changing it to movies. It doesn't quite keep the same. Um, what people kind of love from that original as much and then making it a Pixar movie, you know, Pixar, they make good movies. It would be fun, but you, you were kind of stuck with using in your premise because it's Pixar, they're stuck with using all like these Disney owned properties. And I feel like that would lean too heavily into showing this is how amazing Disney and Disney's movies are and what we own all our property instead of showing all the best, like if they were somehow able to get, you know, Jaws and um, different, just, different movies. I don't think there would be enough variety uh, in that type of movie. Um, and like I said, I just think you, mine is still fun. Dope is a super fun movie. Dope is fast paced and a lot of fun. The actors are charismatic. Siler, um, RJ Siler is hilarious. So he will be a great Ted. Um, and then Shamik Moore from Dope is just a really, he's like a, he's just a great lead. Um, and he, he with RJ Siler, I think will just have great chemistry and you get the music into it. You're going to have people join their rap group at the end. So you have this history, these history, um, guys coming in to rap with them and they're kind of teaching them modern music. And I think that would be a lot of fun. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, Tristan, uh, defend yourself, sir. Well, I disagree that there's not a lot a big range. I mean, Disney owns Fox, which has an insane amount of of backlog. There's, there's an incredible amount of movies for them to go through with all their backlog without just feeling like they're doing Disney fan catering, you know, and I think people loved you know, Wreck-It Ralph. They had all the princesses show up. They had all the video game characters show up. I think people wouldn't really care, like, oh, it's just a studio pandering to their properties. They'd be like, oh, look, it's Mr. Incredible. Oh, look, it's this guy. It's this guy. And I think that's the fun of Bill and Ted. It's not it's supposed to be ridiculous adventures. These two dorky, like, skater bros are going on this adventure, and they're not, like, discovering slavery. They're they're going and having fun. They're just, there's not a moment of conflict in the original Bill and Ted. They're just two dudes having fun. There's there's no villain even. It's just guys on a fun adventure collecting up fun historical figures. There's not a moment where you're supposed to be bummed. There's not a moment where you're supposed to feel bad. It's a moment that's all about fun, all about being excellent to each other. And I think if you if you make it a whole moral about like history and about the problems of history, it's not going to leave people feeling rad. They're just going to feel like, oh, man, history sucks. And I think... This yeah. is a great way for people to leave the movie hyped and seeing their favorite characters all come together. And I think that's what people want out of Bill and Ted is fun, ridiculous adventure and not anything serious. Which is why I have Dope's director in there because I think even when telling those stories, it can be a lot of fun. It's, they, they will, it, like I said, it's not going to focus on that stuff as far as like they're going to go there and every time they're somewhere in history, they're going to be like, ooh, here's some bad stuff and like take away. They're just going to, they're going to take these moments away from it and be like, why didn't we learn about that? and then add that into their speech. So it's not like that is the focus of the movie, but it definitely is a theme that you can bring in uh, so that it has some type of moral at the end without just um, being a fun adventure. So it's a fun adventure with at least a little bit of a moral. All right, um, okay. Uh, I, I think we're ready to uh, to make our decision. We're up two hours and 30 minutes on this uh, show. We're almost at our longest one of all time. So Ange, um, after both of them have made their pitches, uh, what what are you siding with? What are you more interested in seeing? 
I didn't even know what movie we were talking about at first. I just hadn't seen this Never one. Seen Another perfect okay. example. Um, first time judge, I'm going to have to use that excuse. I was kind of interested in both of them, so I'm very interested to see where your final decision lies. All right, here's my thing. I, I thought Bobby uh, had this point locked up um, because I, I liked his uh, director. I liked his cast. I liked the way he went with this movie, but Tristan brought up some very good points in his argument. So I think um, rule-wise, Charlie Sheen as Socrates in a small role is a better use of Charlie Sheen than probably any of the other pitches that I've had to do with, because I know a, a past episode had to do with Charlie Sheen. Don't give him a big role. Put him in a, in, in a single role. Bobby pitched that well of he's someone who doesn't take himself too seriously. I, I enjoyed that pitch. Um, but uh, honestly, though, when Tristan started defending it and brought it into it, I'm going to go see Bill and Ted for a fun movie. And I want to see comedy. I want to see fun people brought back from history and I like the idea of Disney characters replacing the Abraham Lincolns and the Genghis Khans and the Socrates. I do like the way Tristan went with it. And Bobby, I think you could have went one of two ways. You could have went, I'm going to make this movie more serious and I'm going to teach Bill and Ted about slavery and about racism in this country. Or I'm going to make this a comedy movie. I'm not going to bring this stuff into it. I think your movie... The tone will be too all over the place. It will not have the serious issues that it should have um, where where it could be. So, Tristan, I'm going to go with you. So you save yourself from the 6-3 defeat. It will still be 5-4, but you will not be um, at a disadvantage in your following uh, uh, game against Bobby. But we do have some live comments, uh, and I did not want them to uh, distract me from my from my pitch or from my ruling. So, what else we got? Uh, movie change up, which is literally our podcast has, because I think that's how you use him. Hashtag Charlie Sheen. Well, Bobby with the shade. That was, that was also shade on me for my previous use of Charlie Sheen. That's true. And then Joe Freaky says, if I type uh, in my phone on my personal account. If I do it, uh, the stream is movie changer. Yeah, makes sense. That's why it is a uh, movie changer. All right, anything else, Joe? Michael Socrates is <laughs> poison. I don't know shit about Socrates, so okay. Uh, I kind of like Socrates more, like uh, Choker and Knight's Tale. Uh, crazy. First of all, a Knight's Tale is a shitty movie. Uh, second of all, Joe <laughs> says make up call decision trying to cover up nepotism. <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't know. First of all, that's horseshit. Second of all, that's a bad call because Bobby's movie was like, I'm going to be a comedy, but I'm also going to go to racism. And, and you know, you can't combine the two. Like, you got to go serious with one or the other way with one. So Bobby still won, so fuck I off. Disagree, but I'll take the win. I'll okay, take the win. You, but fuck off. And second of all, Bobby wins anyway. So nepotism still real i'm perfectly fine with that i'll take I'll, I'll take the win no matter how i can get it at this point i'm one in three now i, I need yeah, bobby, bobby and tristan fighting for their first victory tristan only on the second episode so you know owen two is better than uh owen four so congrats bobby and one and three it's like yeah. being the biggest loser um yeah. anyway uh 
Thanks for that. That was a, that was a fun episode. Uh, you know, uh, we'll start with Tristan. You got any recommendations for our audience to check out? Anything you've been watching lately or over quarantine? Well, I finally made it out to the theater and saw Tenet last week, so that was okay. pretty awesome. Ooh. Make sure you bring earbuds because it's like insanely loud. People were literally complaining to the manager that it was so loud, and they were like, "That's just the movie; it's loud." So it's like For a sure universal it's thing. It's very bad sound editing, but I <laughs> I enjoy all his movies, but he's very bad at uh, sound editing, like Interstellar. But okay, I mean, I'm very I I'm super excited to see Tenet. Whenever our movie theaters open, which I think is I don't know, if they have, I don't know, if even I didn't check to see if they announced that yet. But we'll see. It's sometime gyms and movie theaters are all supposed to be open like Tuesday-ish in uh, in Michigan. So we'll see. But I'm interested in seeing Tenet. I'm very, very excited for it. So, Bobby, what do you got for me? Uh, so Jen and I just recently watched a movie that had been recommended to me before, but I avoided it. Um, it doesn't have a fantastic reviews, but it's called Two Night Stand uh, with Miles Teller and Ashley Tipton. It's actually really good. It's a really good movie. It's about basically these two that have a one night stand and then get trapped together in a snowstorm. So they have to stay longer. Um, And it's just a fun hour and a half. It's, it's like, it's like 88 minutes. um, And they're just good actors. Like I'd recommend giving a shot, especially if you're 88 minutes, 80, it's like 88 minutes. It's really, yeah. yeah. There's a movie called 88 minutes. Not, you know, I don't know. Yeah. no, But yeah, we watched that. It was way better than I thought it was. It's a fun watch, especially if you're with a, you know, with your partner or whatever, it's a fun movie. Cool. Give that shot. Yeah. And what have you? What have you been? Uh, what have you been watching? What have you been into lately? I like to. My favorite part about you is your taste in movies. So I'm just. I'm not ready to admit what I've been watching in my personal time. Uh, it's just trash TV and reality TV. Hey, go for it. You know, we. You don't know what our audience is into. I just. I've been watching Real Housewives franchise it's just it's so good they just yell at each other and it's the chaos that i never wanted hey that's what you do um i haven't watched it yet but uh the first season of the boys was uh one of the best tv shows i've watched in a long time um so i have not watched the second season but i probably will um by next week so i'm going to recommend uh the boys as well as on netflix they just added uh the Michael Jordan uh, documentary from ESPN, uh, The Last Dance. It is a fantastic uh, documentary. I, I just started that. I'm about three episodes of five, I think, in. Uh, Movie Change Up says watch Love Island, best so trash show on TV. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You're going to watch it with me. But, so, uh, you're going to make me watch it. So we'll see if it's any good. Joe also really likes Big Brother, which is trash TV. Only person I know in the planet that probably likes that uh, uh, garbage, but Joe loves it. So we'll see. Watch uh, Big Brother if you're if you're bad at uh, knowing good things. And yeah. Joe <laughs> says this season sucks. So don't even bother. Yeah. Right, so uh, this was a this was a fantastic episode. I was happy to be back on. Um, thank you to uh, my brother Bobby, my new friend Tristan, and my fiance Angelica. Thank you, so um, thank you, everyone. So have a fantastic night, and uh, we will we will see you uh, next week. Goodbye.